was it bad? What was it like working with him, working with her? You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. Backstage Babble is a podcast interviewing professionals in the theater industry about themselves, their careers, and the people they've worked with along the way. Before I welcome our very exciting guest, I want to remind everyone who is listening right now to please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. If you go right down to the bottom of this podcast page, you can give any number of stars from one to five, and I also encourage you to leave a written comment and let me know what you think. Reviews will help the show gain popularity on iTunes, so I would really appreciate if you did so. Thanks in advance. All right, today I am honored to welcome our guest, Michael Levine. Aside from having the largest privately owned sheet music collection in the world, Michael is also a longtime cabaret music director whose projects have included the songs of Stephen Schwartz, The Algonquin Kid, and his popular series, Michael Levine and Friends. His work at the York Theater has included their productions of Billion Dollar Baby and Carmelina, and he is also the longtime pianist for the Outer Critics Circle awards. At the Kennedy Center, he co-starred with Mimi Hines in the Rogers and Hart review This Funny World. He is also an extremely respected vocal coach whose clients include Broadway's best and brightest. You may also know Michael from his albums, including the Lost Broadway series and Hamlish Uncovered. This also marks the first time live music and live singing will be heard right here on Backstage Babble as Michael opens up his file cabinets full of rare sheet music and plays six exciting selections. So, without further ado, here is Broadway's true music man, Michael Levine. So, how did you first discover theater as a child? Well, my parents were very into theater. My mother grew up in New York City. I was born in New York City, and uh, uh, though I didn't come, I came back as I was young in, in, you know, elementary school, junior high school, and high school coming to see shows. But I started out, my mother lived, is going to be 96 in next month, so she's been in New York since 1924, and she grew up going to theater with her family, in fact. And then she, her favorite story is when she was one of her great stories is when she went on a date with a guy to New Haven to the first preview of My Fair Lady sitting next to Moss Hart. And he had a a yellow legal pad and was taking copious notes all about it. She just watched him taking notes the whole night. And uh, she loves telling that story. So I've been immersed in theater since I was a kid. And my sister and I went to, have you heard of Frenchwood's Festival of the Performing Arts? It's the competitor to Stage Door Manor, which is kind of the more well-known one, but Frenchwood's is quite known too. And I went, started going there when I was your age, when I was 13. Um, and I played the boy's father in the Fantastics, as one does when he's 13. And uh, so there, Ken Cantor, you got nothing, I got nothing on you, right? But uh, playing El Gallo, but he's El Gallo. And, uh, and then after that, actually, I went to see the Fantastics. This was when I was thir- 14, maybe. I went to see the Fantastics off-Broadway because my parents knew I'd played the role. And they said, let's go see it off-Broadway at the Sullivan Street. And I remember how I loved it. And it was great. And I just was fascinated to see how it was really done, having done it at camp. But I went to that camp for, for, from... 
age 13, four, from 14, I turned 14, I think that summer, until I was 18 or 19, last year being a counselor. And what I always say is I'm so old that my last year at French Woods was two years before little 12-year-old Jason Robert Brown and the 11-year-old Andrea Burns started going there. But I went there with Andy Lee, and Andy Lee's father wrote the music to Man of La Mancha, as in Mitch Mishley. And I also went to summer camp with Robin, Andrea, and Hilary Morse, whose father is Robert Morse. And um, I actually played the role of Fiorello opposite both Andrea played Marie and Robin was Mitzi, if you know Fiorello at all. So, and I played uh, the murderer in, in Ten Little Indians, and I played... Demetrius in Once in Midsummer Night's Dream. And I played Judd. Of course, you see me as Judd, don't you, in Oklahoma? But <laughs> in Oklahoma. But I mean, Ali Hakim in my, in my, uh, was, was Danny Kosserin. Have you heard of Michael Kosserin? Michael Kosserin's a big musical director on Broadway. He's musically directed every Alan Menken show since Beauty and the Beast. And his brother was also a conductor, did Children of Eden originally. And we, he was in the show. And so I really learned a lot being steeped with doing musicals when I was in my early teens there. And I played young Scrooge in Christmas Carol, the children's theater in Bethesda. I'm from Bethesda. My father, we moved to LA for a couple of years and where I did children's theater when I was actually 10 or 11 in Encino and since in Sherman Oaks and Van Nuys in the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles. And then I did it growing up and I'm from the neighboring town to Glen Echo. Glen Echo is the hometown of one Steve Ross, who maybe you've heard of. And, um, uh, so we, when he was home, I had him come over to my mother and meet my mother and all that. So um, I'm from down there, but I, but I, I spent all the time going up to New York, and then I started Columbia. And my classmate was Barack Obama. Maybe you've heard of him. Oh. And my other, my other classmate at Barnard was Janine Tesoriero, which is her real name. So I knew her when she was 18. Janine Tesoriero. She married her boyfriend then. His name is Keith Levinson. If you look at the Secret Garden, the dance music was written by Janine Levinson. And then she changed her name. One day they did a production of Twelfth Night at the Lincoln Center Theater and it said music by Janine Tesori. I went, Janine Tesori? I bet that's Janine Tesoriero. And sure enough, so I've known her forever. And it's just cool, you know, knowing these people. I also went to elementary school with a movie, a filmmaker. His name is Todd Haynes, H-A-Y-N-E-S. You may, you can see his movies. And um, I knew him when he was, you know, 11. So, but I started Columbia in when I was 18 and I started going, it was kind of an excuse for going to Broadway shows whenever there was an excuse for a final exam or going to opening night of a Broadway show. I go to the Broadway show and they always say, when did you start collecting music? And I started, you know, when I was, when we come up to New York, there used to be a sheet music shop here in Lincoln center called Hanson's. And I used to come up and I would go to Hanson's and they would have sales. So they had a sale. I remember all the scores were half price. So the scores back then cost the full vocal score cost $25. And I said, but it was $12.50. And I said, well, I'm going to buy the score to company for $12.50. So I had the score to company when I, and I thought, I thought, well, I should, get a lot more stuff. So when I started at Columbia, I started discovering sheet music shops. There are actually sheet music shops peppered throughout the city. You may have heard of Colonies, the most famous one that stayed in existence until just a, a 10 years ago. But there were a lot of other little shops that sold out of print used music. And I started buying that up and I started collecting it throughout my 20s. And then I became friendly with a neighbor here. I actually did a production of the Apple, the first act of the Apple Tree by Bakken Harnick at the duplex downtown. This is again over almost 30, over 30 years ago. But in the audience was this guy, Arthur Siegel. And I knew who I was, I looked out in the audience and went, oh my God, Arthur Siegel's there. And years later, when I became friendly with Sheldon Harnick, 
I mentioned that I had done that production. He went, oh, Arthur told me about that, said it was terrific. So I was, I was like, great, and Sheldon knows my work. And so Arthur Siegel was a composer who wrote all the songs for the New Faces reviews in the 1950s and 60s, New Faces of 52, which Sheldon Harnick got his start with, and 56, 62, he gave the start to people like Eartha Kitt and Paul Lind and Mel Brooks and Alice Ghostly. And Arthur lived across the street and he would come over here with Steve Ross and, we, and the three of us had a mutual friend named Roger Sturdivant. Roger was an expert in all things musical theater. He was the original box office guy for Follies, A Little Night Music, Chorus Line. And he loved, he was 6'6 and had a belly out to here. And he had this big, low voice. Roger, Steve Ross and I do impersonations of Roger all the time. And we would sit around the, around the floor filing, looking at all my sheet music. And Arthur would say, oh, can I get a copy of that? I said, of course, Arthur, when you borrow that. So when Arthur died in 1994, I went over, uh, Roger and I went over to his apartment across the street, the same building that Betty Comden lives in, lived in. Oh. And we said, he, they said, would, would you be interested in buying the whole collection? And I, our jaws dropped. And somehow I made a deal for it. He'd been collecting since he was 12 years old. He died at the age of 70. And people like Julie Stein and Richard Rogers would give him music when he, when he uh, was saying, here, will you try out the, these songs and get them, make them known in piano bars and stuff? So he had an amazing collection. It was a whole day of bringing file cabinets over. And it was, so that's, that's how my collection first grew in leaps and bounds. Around that time, no, many years, actually around that time, maybe the year, year or two before that, I'd been playing piano at a piano bar in the village called the Five Oaks. And this guy came up to me and I knew him. I knew he was a big Broadway guy, but I hadn't met him. I, and I hadn't really, I kind of met him. He knew he knew me somehow. And his name was Peter Howard. And Peter was a... Um, is it was a conductor on Broadway and was a dance music arranger. He wrote the dance music to Chicago, Hello Dolly, Annie, Barnum, Baby, Carnival, Crazy for You, many, many, many shows and conducted many of those shows too. And he said, well, you know, I'm doing a production of Cabaret in Italy. In Italy. I said, oh, well, you know, I speak Italian. He said, you do? I said, yeah, parlo, parlo, parlo Italiano. He said, well, would you like to come over and play for me and possibly be my assistant there? I was like, oh, he said, he said we're going, I'm going with Bayork Lee. And I was like, Bayork Lee, great. Wow, cool from Chorus Line. So I went over to Peter's house and he said, okay, you got to work on your left hand. I was like, okay, I'll work on it. So I went home, I went and got a job in Florida doing a show called No Way to Treat a Lady by Doug Cohen, uh, a wonderful musical in Palm Beach, West Palm Beach. I rented a piano and every day I practiced that cabaret score like nobody's business. Came back to New York and Peter was like, oh, I'm very impressed. This is great. You want to be my assistente musicale in, in Italy? And I went to do that. And Peter became my kind of mentor for around 15 years. He died around 12 years ago. And he, you know, I did a lot of shows with him, learned a lot from him, conducting, all kinds of things. It was really a wonderful experience. And when Peter died, I inherited his collection. And he was the man who taught Rex Harrison how to speak, sing his songs in My Fair Lady. So I got a hardbound score of My Fair Lady signed by Rex Harrison, Julie Andrews, Stanley Holloway, Robert Coote, Lerner and Lowe, Moss Hart, Honey Holm, everybody. And I love signatures. When everybody comes here, I say, would you mind signing this sheet music? So I have a lot of stuff signed here. And I've been buying various sheet music to augment my collection over the years from various collectors. I inherited another collection, a woman named Elise Breton. She wrote the, the vocal arrangements to 1776 originally, and her best friend was Sherman Edwards, who wrote the music to 1776. So I have all these cut songs from 1776 and every song that Sherman Edwards ever wrote, published songs, weird stuff, and tons. She had, it, I had to rent a car to get all her music back here. So over the years, I keep inheriting. I have no room left in my apartment, but I renovated it to build floor-to-ceiling, wall-to-wall file cabinets. So 
I'm shutting up for a minute. So I want to go back in time a little bit to ask you, right now you do an incredible number of different things within the theater, but what was your original aspiration? Good question. I, I, I'm pretty sure I did want to be an actor. When I was a kid, when I was five, I, had, I did Suzuki, which is a little piano method that every, every five-year-old, you have your own little briefcase and you walk to the, I remember my mother taking me there and I started playing piano when I, from when I was five. So I knew I could play piano and that was getting me through the day. But I, I started acting. I acted in these shows I told you about at summer camp. And when I started at Columbia, I was an English major. I just wanted a good liberal arts education, but I wanted to be an actor. I was doing shows. I did the, I was the patter baritone of the Gilbert and Sullivan Society. So I did um, Coco and the Mikado and Bunthorn and Patience and the Major General and Pirates of Penzance. So I was doing shows at Columbia and I thought I'm gonna start pursuing being an actor. So I would go and I think I went, after I graduated, I, I remember sitting in a room waiting to audition for the first national tour of Little Shop of Horrors at Seymour and like an hour went by, two hours went by. And I think I psyched myself out and went, I can't do this. And I saw, I saw my friends all struggling and not being able to pay their bills. And I was making good money and getting lots of work as a pianist. So I thought, you know, I think I'm going to do the piano thing. Yet, I've been able to act occasionally over the years in various things off Broadway, all over the world. And I sing a lot. I, I mean, I love singing. So I keep it going and do whatever I can. So I think I've got the best of both worlds in that I'm able to do a little bit of everything. And the music, cheap music thing, I thought I wanted to be a conductor. When you do what I do, Theoretically, you want to conduct on Broadway. And I had an experience around 25 years ago. I had a friend in Australia. I've done a lot of work in Australia. I go there twice a year for the past 10 years teaching. I teach. I work mainly as a vocal coach, teaching, working with students, helping them find good songs to sing for auditions, but more importantly, working with them on the acting of the songs. And I've been going to conservatories in Australia for many years. Um, but I met this guy. This is how my Australian connection started. In 1985, um, when I was three, just kidding. I was in an Arby's, you know, Arby's, the roast beef sandwich place. There, was a, there used to be an Arby's at Arby's at 49th and Broadway. I was sitting with a friend and I said, look, that guy's got the vocal selections to Marilee B. Roll along. Let's go chat with him. And it was a young pianist from Sydney who'd never done anything, he and his wife. And we started friendly and exchanging. And he's now become the, the top, top musical supervisor of every show in Australia. He's in charge of Cameron Macintosh for all of Southeast Asia. And he's really the guy, his name is Guy Simpson. His name is Guy, Guy Simpson. And I was actually on my way when I met him to the videotaping for television of Sunday in the Park with George um, back then in 85. Um, so Guy got me hooked and when I started going to Australia, I started going first in 89, but then in 2004 I started going regularly to Australia and teaching. And um, I realized I could do, make, you know, make a living doing this in other countries and keeping busy. Yeah. So, so before you were as well known as you are now, who were some of the um, actors or writers that you looked up to and then how many of those people have you since become friends with? Oh gosh, I don't know. I, you know, I think when I was young, my first Broadway show was the all black version of Guys and Dolls in 1976. And I, and I started seeing, and I also saw the magic show. It was also one of my early shows. And when I first came to New York, um, I loved Patty Lupone because I went to see Evita. And I remember I went to her last performance sitting in the aisle and I did meet her eventually. I went to see Sweeney Todd when she did it on Broadway. And I was friends with several of the people in the show, including Donalyn Champlin, who was playing Pirelli. And Donna Lynn met me at the stage door and said, I want to take you up to, to meet Patty. And I was like, oh, my God, okay. And I had already met her brother because her brother, Robert Lupone, who you may remember was the original Zach in a chorus line, called me because he was looking for sheet music 
to her face from Carnival. But then he said that he heard me say on my machine that I also coach. And he said, well, I think I'd like to coach with you. So I was coaching Robert Lupon all the time back then, but I never, so I went up to meet Patty. I said, you know, I used to coach your brother. And she was like, oh, great. And she had this very dark dressing room with like candles and it was very, you know, zen. And I had a great, I was thrilled. I, I've met her a couple of times since. She never remembers that she's met me before, but I've also helped her with sheet music a lot. And a lot of people you, you look up to or you hear stories about them, like, oh, I, that, that person's not the nicest person. When you're in the position to help them, they will be the nicest person in the world. Not really Patty, I'm talking about other actors over the years who I've been worried about reputations, and then they've been so sweet to me. People who I sometimes play for, for piano concerts for, and I know that they often go to me when they're looking, sometimes they're looking for something, do you have, if I loved you from Carousel? And I'm like, really? You, you really, why did you just go there, get it online? I think people just know that they can get music, so they, 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 they ask me for, but they ask me for a lot of obscure things. And often I will point them if they can get it legally online. I'll say, look, here's the composer's website. And, you know, I was in charge of a couple of collections of sheet music of singers over the years. Um, Pasek and Paul and Marcy Heisler and Zina Goldrich. And then they would say, OK, can we take our collection back? And I said, of course, please, let me recommend you people buy your music. They said, we were at the time when Pasek and Paul, before they'd done anything, we're like, we're paying our bills with this. I said, of course, let me help you any way I can. So, but before that, they were like, can you please get proliferate our music and get it out there so people will know that it's out there. So, but that, but I think over, there, there were people, like I saw Frank Langella in Dracula originally. And I loved him, I've never met him, but he's somebody I have not met. I think like, like sometimes you see people like Emily Skinner and Alice Ripley and they both become dear friends and Norm Lewis. And I've seen them in shows that's, that's like reason, that's not like knowing them from seeing them in this, in, you know, when I was a kid, but seeing them on Broadway and not yet knowing them and then meeting them and going, and now they're all friends and I played for them all, but it's just a, now, now it's happening a lot quicker because I think people know, kind of know who I am. I hate so to- as a musical director, you've worked on cabarets with a lot of stars of Broadway and otherwise, and I want to ask you how you select songs or how you help them select songs to do in these shows. Mm-hmm. And not only famous people, anybody. I've worked on a lot of acts over the years, and I love it. I think I think my talent lies in musical direction. I love musical directing because, modestly, I think I'm good at it, and I I think I'm good at pointing out. I'm truly the word police. I think that's what a lot of the composers and lyricists I know appreciate that I will point out when somebody's singing a wrong lyric, even a wrong and or the. I'm very much with with cabaret acts or shows. I will say, look, you got that that melody wrong, that rhythm wrong, that lyric wrong. I'm very much about getting the song in the way it was supposed to do be, unless you're doing it as like a jazz standard, you want to do your own thing, that's different. But if you're doing the song and want to pay homage to the songwriter or the lyricist, it's important to me. So I get asked to do acts over the years. I've done quite a few of them, not nearly as many as people like Alex Rybeck or Christopher Denny, but I, I have very, my friend Roger, I was telling you about, he thought of an act in the analogy of a necklace. And if you think of a necklace as the pearls of the necklace are the songs in the act, but it's, they're not the important part of the, of the act. What the important part of the act is, is the string, how they're put together. So a bunch of songs just sung, where like I hate an act where there's no pattern. They don't talk and, they, and it's just, here's another song, here's another song, here's another song. I, like, I think it's very important. And an act can be, hi, I'm Charles, I moved, I, I grew up in New York and I'm 13 now and this is my life and, I'm, and just songs about it. Or it can be, a hook, there could be a gimmick, something where that will get people to want to come to the act. So when I'm working with somebody, whether they're well-known or not, 
I'll say, what do you want to do? And a, a director, a good director of a cabaret act will also do this. Like Ken Bloom's friend, Barry Kleinbord does this. I would say, asks, you know, gets information out of these people to say, what is, what, tell me about your life. And they'll work that and say, okay, we need a song that fits here. I often get calls from performers saying, I need a song that, you know, and they'll give me very, very specific parameters. So specific, there's no possible way I'll find a song that would specifically fit that. But I say, if you can give me a more general idea, I can maybe find a song that would fit what you're talking about. But I'll say, tell me the story of your life. How do you want, or do you want to do a, a certain songwriter and pay homage to that songwriter? Or I'll say, um, yeah, the, the other way of doing it is is a certain theme. As I say, a theme. There was an actress named Shauna Hicks. She was in Me and My, Meet Me in St. Louis on Broadway. And she put together a show about 60s fast, 60s women lived, you know, the mores of 60s women. And she called it Shauna Hicks and her 60s chicks. And she had a picture of, of, of Mary Tyler Moore from the Dick Van Dyke show. And, and then it was such a success. She did it for years. And she did a sequel where she did uh, 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 Farrah Fawcett Majors. You know, there was this famous picture of Farrah Fawcett that we all had on our closet door, our, you know, bedroom doors, because, you know, with her hair looking gorgeous. And she called it Shauna Hicks and her 70s mix. So she, these were really successful shows in like whatever the 90s or 2000s. And she, so that's, that's and people would, people go to uh, cabaret rooms looking at all the flyers, looking for interesting hooks. They, they said, oh, that sounds like a fun show. Let's go to that. So I say, find some way of getting, if you're famous, if you're Norm Lewis, people are going to come to see Norm Lewis and you could be reading the phone book. It won't really matter, but I'll help you hone a show. Like, like when Leslie Odom, after, right before Hamilton won, was nominated for all the Tonys, um, he, I knew him through, through my friend Savannah Wise, who was in, in Smash with him. And I played her wedding and I drove Leslie and his wife up. And by the time we to, to the wedding in Connecticut and drove them every day, a half an hour to their hotel, to the wedding. So after by the time we got back that weekend, we were like fast friends. He said, can I come over? I'm working on my first CD with my producer. And we're looking at like looking for things like, you know, offbeat songs. And I was like, yeah, come over. Sure. So he came over and we um, spent time finding some cool songs and, he, he kind of knew what he was looking for, but he was like things like After Midnight. He was looking for jazz standards, but he wanted to do different takes on them. I didn't do the arrangements, but he, you know, I kind of helped him come up with some ideas. And his wife came over when she was doing a show at 54 Below, too. So how do you usually get jobs as a musical director? Is it because people usually ask you, like Leslie Odom? or? Yeah, with an actor, you have to audition. And with an actor, you have a resume. As a musical director, I have a resume, but I find as a musical director, you get jobs. It's all who you know. It's all word of mouth. Oh, I hear he's very good. In the old days, back when I was a kid, when I was young, when I was out of college, you would, you would actually occasionally audition. I, in 1984, I auditioned for the Bucks County Playhouse, which was at the time was a prestigious theater, had been around since the 40s. Everybody knew about it. They'd been doing star packages. And I got the job as the assistant to the musical director, but I was really the musical director. The musical director was this woman who needed the money, but she didn't care about the title. So I did all the work. And we did like uh, Joseph in the Dreamcoat with Jimmy Osmond. We did um, Joey Travolta was in Guys and Dolls. We had lots of fun people. And it was a great summer. And I got that from an audition. But a lot of, almost all my other jobs have been from recommendations. Somebody says, you're really good. And I hear you've done a lot of stuff. And I can send them a resume. Um, I think I get a lot more work as a coach teaching than I do. I don't really pursue the musical director thing as much as I should, because modestly, I think I'm good at it. And I love doing it. I love going to a city, spending three weeks in rehearsal, two weeks in performance, and then coming home. But I'd like to do that more, but I don't pursue it as much. So I get more work as a coach. Also, also word of mouth, I think. Yeah. 
So well, you- I want to ask you about one of the many shows you've worked on, which is The Algonquin Kid by Michael Colby, which was turned into a cabaret act. Well, that was really Michael's idea. And he, Michael Colby is an old friend. I've done a lot of shows with him. And he knew the songs he wanted. I don't think I made any suggestions. I think he knew exactly what he wanted in the show. In fact, he had the score all laid out. If people come to me and say, with a show like that, can you help me come up? And it's non-specific. That was specific in that he had stories to tell. And, so, and they were all in, revol- involving his time at the Algonquin, often about specific people, so he would punctuate them with a song. But I will listen to what they're saying and say, okay, that says that. What if we do a song here that says this? And they'd be like, great. More often than not, I will do a show of a specific composer. Like I did a concert a few weeks ago of the works of Arthur Siegel who I was telling you about for the American Popular Song Society. We're going to different performers. I would go like with the Arthur Siegel. I would go to various performers and say, come over here. I'm going to sing you a bunch of songs. You tell me one you like. And they would say, okay, I want to do that one. I'd say, okay, somebody else is already saying that. I have to show you another one. But, but that's how I pick the songs. So sometimes I will do it that way. But I like being in control and not just saying, do anything you want. I'm doing a show next month, late in a couple of weeks, down where I'm from in Bethesda of, of, via Zoom of the Tin Pan Alley, just of, of the great American songbook. And I'm going to some fr- various friends in the cabaret world like Steve Ross and saying, can you just sing a song, any song you want, as long as it's from the 1920s and 30s, and it's a really well-known song that everybody knows. So Steve Ross said, can I sing to you cheek to cheek? I said, of course, perfect. So he did that. Katie Sullivan sang as time goes by, and, and there you go. So I would love to ask you about your own cabaret show, Michael Levine and Friends, which you've done around the country with Christine Petty and Richard Kind and great people like that. Started, it started in 2004. I was in Hollywood, and I had a friend named Rick Starr. Rick, Rick Starr ran Hollywood sheet music, and I called myself the East Coast Rick Starr, and he called himself the West Coast Michael Levine because he ran Hollywood sheet music, and their claim, they're still around out of, Canada, out of Las Vegas now, but Rick's has passed away, but Rick was kind of, would be known for being able to get any piece of sheet music, often by going to me, just like sometimes I would go to him and he had great connections with all the film studios and the publishing houses, so he could get anything, I mean, the obscurest of obscure. So Rick and I were walking along, and picture this like it was yesterday, near the La Brea Tar Pits, if you've heard of them in LA, and he said, why don't we do a show? We knew that there was a place called the Cinegrill in the Hollywood Roosevelt Hotel. They were gonna give me a night and he said, let's, let's call it Michael Levine and Friends. I actually have another friend, Clifford Bell. Clifford is a cabaret director in Los Angeles. And Clifford said, I'll help you direct it. I'll help you get people. And, I, and he said, get friends who were in LA, happened to be in LA at the time. So I said, who's in LA? Norm Lewis, are you in LA? He said, I'm in LA, I'll do the show. So Norm Lewis did the first one. And it really, if you know Brad Ellis, did you ever watch Glee, Charles? Yeah. And Brad was, do you know Brad Ellis is? Brad was the pianist in Glee with the beard yeah. and Forbidden Broadway. Brad's an old friend and Brad did my show and his wife and I had little, really wonderful, wonderful people. And it went really, really great. I was actually staying with George Firth. I was dear friends with George Firth who lived in Beverly Hills and he came to the show and he said, well, now you're a producer. I was like, thanks, George. And it was great. It went great. I just told anecdotes like I'm telling you today, just told stories about my life. And interspersed that either I would sing a song or I'd bring people up to sing songs. And it went really, really well. And I decided I was going to have it a benefit for a fund I was going to start for auditioning actors where I would give each actor, the pick an actor somehow from, from casting directors or something at the end of a year, you know, $100, $1,000, whatever. And I made a little over 1000 I said, that's going to go towards this. And the, and the show went really, really well. And then a year or two later, a couple of years later, another opportunity 
came up to do it in Los Angeles. And I did it several more times in Los Angeles over the years, sometimes kind of morphing it. It wasn't really Michael Levine friends. Sometimes the people first time, but I was, you know, I, I was urged to use them. I was like, this is my friend, you know, quote, unquote. <laughs> but, um, but then, and then finally, Nella Vera, who does a press for 54 Below, lives upstairs in my building. She, she went to Jennifer Tepper and said, why don't you ask Michael? And I've knew, knew Jennifer. I've known Jennifer since she was this, you know, kid in high school in Florida and used to send her sheet music. And she said, why don't you do, you want to do this show? I know you've done this in other, in, in all, all over LA. You want to do it in New York? And I was like, oh, I, I would love to do it 54 Below. My only concern was selling it. I hate the idea of doing these acts because you have to sell tickets. I'm so... <laughs> But I thought, okay, my mother's going to come up at 92, she's going to, 94, she's going to come up from DC. I know my mother and sister, at least I know two people will be there. And then the first people I went to where I thought, let me start with two Tony winners. And Alice Ripley turned me down, but I got two Tony winners. I got Tanya Pinkins and Daisy Egan. And then I got Christine Petty. Christine Petty is one of my oldest friends. We go back, I shouldn't say old, one of my best friends, dear, dearest friends. And she, we go back since before her first non-equity Forbidden Broadway. And she said, of course, I'll do it with you. And then I, uh, uh, Heather McRae is also a dear friend and she did it. And really, it was really, really fun. I love doing it here and it led to, I've done a number of things at 54 Below over the years, but that was obviously, because it was again, me telling stories, figuring out and, and just talking about my friendships with composers and telling stories about shows I've done, places I've gone, and people I've met, and things I've done. And I love it. So, so another thing that you produced was a Stephen Schwartz evening with Stephen Schwartz himself. So what was it like to sort of collaborate with him on this? That was great. I mean, I've known Stephen for quite some time, because Stephen was good friends with Roger Sturdivant. In fact, Roger Sturdivant introduced Stephen to his wife, believe it or not, years ago. And uh, so Stephen had come over here in if you get a book called Defying Gravity, which is Stephen Schwartz's biography, but if you get the first edition, not the second edition, the first edition is a whole chapter when Stephen was here in my apartment with Alex Lacamoire. You know who Alex Lacamoire is, the musical supervisor of Hamilton. And Alex and Stephen were here with Carol Desjere, who runs Stephen's website, and they were doing a kind of a symposium on Stephen's influences. It wasn't really a symposium for the public, it was for the book. But there's a whole chapter about my library and a picture of me and Stephen, everybody at the, my piano. And Stephen, we talked about Roger. I knew Stephen Ish. That's where we really got to know each other because he was here in my apartment, of course, signed all my sheet music. And um, so then years later, there was a company called, a group called Orphan Starfish. And they provide uh, computers and technological stuff and humanitarian need to, to impoverish countries all over the world. And the guy in charge was friends with Stephen. said, I want to do a concert for our show for our thing and we'll do it and then so carol and i started discussing it they went to me to musically direct it and they said why don't we make it lesser known songs of Stephen? we'll call it orphaned songs for orphaned starfish and um we did songs that weren't well known for example we did a song called marking time which was replaced by extraordinary and pippin we did a song we opened with we, we opened with ben vereen the real ben vereen singing magic to do so it was uphill from there that was it was it was amazing we had this ridiculously amount of crazy people. The first two people who said yes to me were again, two Tony winners, Alice Ripley and Daisy Egan, who sang Two's Company from The Magic Show. We had Justin Guarini singing Which Way's the Party, which was replaced by Dancing Through Life and Wicked. Um, so it was a lot of songs like that that were cut. We had Adam Jacobs, the original Aladdin, singing, uh, he sang Marking Time. Um, and, it was, and then we had Paul Schaefer, the pianist from David Letterman, who lives across the street from me, came here to rehearse in my apartment with all these members of the original cast of Godspell, and they all sang this big Godspell melody. It was a very exciting evening, and I was so excited to be there to do it. And 
And uh, I think uh, Josh Ellis was there, and he said it was the best show of that kind that he's ever seen. You can ask Josh about it. He said it was one of the best he's ever seen of that kind. He just thought it was really, just everything clicked. It just really went, it was wild and wonderful. And Stephen was so gracious to me after, and that meant so much. Yeah. So has any performer ever rejected an idea by you of what to sing? Absolutely. I mean, I'm always encouraging them. I'm kind of, I don't know if the word is humble, but I'm kind of always trying to say, look, I'm going to sing a song to you. If you don't like it, stop me. You don't, you don't have to wait till I finish the song. They, every time I say that, they never stop me. They're too polite. I say, look, I'm just doing, I'm just picking random songs out saying, I think this would be a good song for you. After the song, and they say, I really hated that. I said, why did you stop me like minutes ago? <laughs> so, or I'll say, you know, tell me. I mean, I'm, I'm totally open to go in other directions. For example, Peter Howard I was talking to you about. Peter wrote the Roxy Vamp. You know the song, bump, bump. So Bob Fosse, the story goes, Bob Fosse said, okay, I need some kind of hook here at the beginning of the song. Peter said, played something, and they said no. And then John Cantor apparently said, said about Peter, Peter would have 150 ideas, and 130 of them may be the worst thing you ever heard, but you have to keep listening because sometimes he'll come up with a Roxy vamp. You're like, oh my God, that's perfect, that's it. So I will come up with songs, and sometimes they'll, they, they may be just not right for whatever reason. But I'll you just say no, and I'll go into another, and I will ta- tangent and riff. I had a student right before I saw you today who was basically, I did, gave her some homework to go and just pick out a bunch of random shows she'd never heard of and just list them to me, and I would riff. She said, Starlight Express. Oh, I said, oh, there are a couple of songs I like for you in that show, but you should look at I Don't Know How to Love Him or or uh, Everything's All Right from Jesus Christ Superstar. You should also look at some songs from The Woman in White. So I riffed off of Andrew Lloyd Webber, or I'll riff onto another composer from that. So I go very stream of consciousness when I'm working with people so they don't like what I first show them. I say, great, let me show you something else. So yes, the short, that's the long answer. The short answer is yes, people do say, no, I don't like that. And I'll say, great, do another one. Same thing for cabaret acts too. So has well, there been anyone you've worked with who's been difficult to coach or to music direct? No, I don't think I've really had, had, had bad experiences coaching i think they're paying me i think when they're paying you money they want that doesn't mean they're going to be they're going to be lovely to you and all that but i've had pretty good experiences immodestly because i think i'm good at what i do and and modestly and and also because i think they they're they're here to learn and they really listen to what i say sometimes i can tell not even with celebrities but with just regular people that for whatever reason they're not connecting to what i'm saying i think i'm never going to see them again and it happens sometimes i have great sessions with people who then become famous. I had a wonderful session with Nick Cordero when he was doing um, uh, The Toxic Avenger here. When he was just came to town, he was anointed the star of Off-Broadway, everybody was saying how wonderful he was, and somebody told him to come to me, and, and we were spending a lot, and we did our spiel. I think it went very well. Whenever I saw him after that, he was so sweet to me, he would give me a big hug, but I think he didn't need, they don't need to come back necessarily, because they've got, they, they have the, the, I talk, I have a whole spiel. I spiel to my students the first time they come here. Where I talk to them about the importance of revealing their sense of humor and never concealing their sense of humor in every audition they go to. And I harp on that. These are lessons I've learned from Roger Sturdivant and, and other people and over the, over the years. And I've been doing the same thing for years about showing them personal, active songs and not singing passive songs. I have a term I call a fortune cookie song. You open up the fortune cookie and it says, life is just a bowl of cherries. And to quote Kristen Chenoweth, 
Why are you telling me? I mean, I want to make sure that I know in your song exactly who you're what you're talking about. So I say, that's why I want to work with you because you are a, I'm, we're sitting behind the table thinking, and I want to work with you because you are a man, boy, man, as I hear in the lyrics of your songs. I think I want to help you find songs that will show us more about you and not about some state of mind. I also tell them to avoid what I call loser songs. You don't want songs that show, present you in a negative light. And we're thinking, and I want to work with you because you're a screw up, which is you say in that song. People say to me, but I've gotten so much work with this song. I said, you may get jobs every day of your professional career with that song. All I'm maintaining is you're getting jobs in spite of what you're singing instead of because of what you're singing. So you get that much work with a loser song like that. Imagine how much more work you're going to get from a positive song that makes you just go, I love him. I can't wait to work with him. So that's what I harp on with my coachings. So who have been some of your favorite performers to work with on different cabarets or shows? I mean, I do love working with Richard Kind. He's, he's great. I, I first met Rich when the producers had opened and he said, you got to help me get in the producers. I went, uh, of course, whatever you say. And I coached him for Bounce originally, which became Gold, which became Wise Guys, which became Roadshow, the Sondheim show that's had four different titles over the years. And Rich, uh, he, I actually went to his place. He was staying in the home of China Phillips and Billy Baldwin, Alec Baldwin's brother at the Beresford. And I went over there and he wanted to sing Look Over There from La Cajo Fall. And I said, I don't know if you should sing a song from the show that beat out Sunday in the Park with George when you're going to be sitting in the room with Stephen Sondheim. So I convinced, but yet he still did. And it went very well. I mean, he got the role. He played the role. And he, but he also wanted to sing There's Nothing Like a Dame. But uh, but Rich and I have done a number of things over the years, and I just he's just so full of energy and fun. The first time I met him, he said, you know, I'm a tenor. I went, okay, okay, thanks. But but he's just, he's just full of stories and great. We just have a good time together. I had amazing coaching with, that, with Patrick Page. When Patrick Page was going in for uh, the Green Goblin, do you know the story of him and, and Spider-Man? No. He was doing, he was about to go to Old Globe, where he was a member of the company, had done a lot of shows at Old Globe, to do the madness of King George. The night before his flight, his agent said, guess what? Um, you're, you're not, I mean, this is actually, I've got, this, I've got the order out of, out of order, but he auditioned, he didn't get it. Alan Cumming got it. But Alan Cumming suddenly got a role in the TV show, The Good Wife. So he had to back out of Spider-Man. And they told Patrick with one day notice, you're not going to San Diego, you're going to be a Broadway star and play the Green Goblin and Spider-Man. So he was like, oh my God. But, but when Patrick and I coached for the show before that, a long time before that, he came here. It was actually a three-hour coaching, which I've rarely have ever had. He told people about it it's because somebody said to me, oh, I heard about that coaching you had with Patrick. I was like, oh my God, cool. It was, it was amazing. We took a song called Welcome to My Nightmare by Alice Cooper and took it apart, literally created a three-act play with that song, which is what I love doing with songs. Patrick started it just in his regular octave. Then he sang it really low. You know, Patrick has that basso profundo yeah. that you hear in Haiti standing. He said, welcome to my nightmare. And then the third time he went really high. He's like, welcome to my nightmare. So it was, it was amazing. I sat there going, yes. And I mean, I did make a lot of suggestions. Where I said, what did you do this here? I mean, we talked about it, the arrangement, every, every aspect of it. And he went in and... The Edge said, you know, Bono and The Edge were the writers of Spider-Man. The Edge said, that's amazing. So I'm going to write a song based on that song for you. And he wrote a song for Patrick when he took over. 
So Patrick took over and then he had to learn another song that the Edge wrote for him. So he came back here to work on the new song. So, and his wife, Paige, who I love, Paige Davis. I've worked with her a lot since she was Mindy Paige Davis a long time ago. And, and I really love her. And we've had some great coachings too. So I think there's so many really fun coachings. Those are the first things that pop into my head though. Also, oh, when I do remember Alice Ripley going in for Christina, which is a show by ABBA after they were, after Mamma Mia, they did it in Sweden and they were doing it at Carnegie Hall. And she was standing right behind me, kind of singing into my ear. I was just getting these goosebumps and chills. She said, can we run it again? I went, uh-huh, yes, we can run it again. And the same thing right after Gypsy closed when Laura Benanti came over, literally the week after Gypsy closed and she wanted to run, the, she was working on a new version of The Man of Star is Born that Mike, Michael John Lucuso was doing, I think maybe Andrew Lloyd Webber, and they were, they, she had to do The Man That Got Away. And we figured out the right key, and she sang it, and I was getting chills. She said, she said can we run it again? I went, uh-huh. You know, with people like that, you're like, you're just like, can't believe they're here in your apartment, you know. Anyway. Mm -hmm. Oh, and sudden, I have to say, I keep thinking of other people. But when, so I, I played piano for many, many years for Craig Carnelia. Craig Carnelia, the songwriter who wrote Sweet Smell of Success, and some songs for working and is their life after high school. I started playing from the late 90s. He had this wonderful acting class, acting of songs. And the creme de la creme of musical theater would take this class. Like I always say, there'd be like two box, a Glinda and three alphabets in every class, you know. But um, I, I remember, so I played the class from 98 all the way till he finished teaching a few years ago. And over the years, sometimes I would take time off to do a show, but I would play it often. And one time I saw Sutton and I had seen Thoroughly Modern Millie in La Jolla. And um, so saw her there, but I'd never met her. And I got in a class and she was like, I know you. I said, I know you. We never knew each other, but we knew, I knew, I mean, half the cast of Millie were friends of mine or students of mine. I'd gone to French Woods with Ann Nathan, if you know Ann, Ann L. Nathan. Yeah. And Mark Kudish was an old friend. And uh, so, and I had seen Millie over the years in all kinds of workshops and things because it was by Janine. So I saw it the very first workshop was with Darcy Roberts, who ended up playing the role in the national tour. Then I saw Kristen Chenoweth. Did you know Kristen Chenoweth played Millie in one of the yeah. workshops? And I saw Kristen. I was an old friend of Kristen's because my friend Tom Warren had brought Kristen over here. They had done Babes in Arms at the Guthrie. And he said, I think you should meet Michael. She said, oh, I want to meet Michael. So she came over here and she sang. Um, I gave her a song on Roger's suggestion called Pardon My Southern Accent, which is by John O. Mercer, because she has that song. And then I, I, she sang Glitter and Be Gay, and I was like, oh, my God. And then I ran into John Kander, and, and I said, oh, John, I heard you cast Kristen Chenoweth in Steel Pier. She's amazing. Wait till you hear her do Glitter and Be Gay. And he said, well, we kind of write our own, wrote our own Glitter and Be Gay, you know, two little words from Steel Pier. And that's when he cast her in Steel Pier. But Kristen, I got asked to do a show called Billion Dollar Baby. It's the show that Comden and Green wrote after On the Town. And B.T. McNichol was directing and he said, I want you to musically direct. I said, great. And he said, can you ask your friend Kristen if she'll do it? And this was after Steel Pier, but long before Charlie Brown. So she was known, but not really well known. And I called her and said, and she said, well, Michael, I don't really audition for readings, but if he wants me to do it, I'll do it. I think I'm really interested in it. And I said, okay. I said, she said, can my boyfriend Mark Kudish be in it too? I said, I, I think so. So I went to BT and he said, oh, all right, all right. Because Jerry Zachs luckily told him, you let Kristen Chenoweth get by, you'll be making the mistake of your career. So Kristen did it. And we had a wonderful time. We, you know, we made a CD and, and Comden and Green were constantly coming every day with new script pages or new lyrics. It was an amazing experience. And then Kristen and I did a show by Michael Colby. Michael Colby wrote a show called Charlotte Sweet that ran off Broadway for a while. But then he wrote a prequel called Ludlow Lad which takes place before the events of Charlotte Sweet. And he went to a concert of it. He said, would you ask Kristen? She said, sure, I'll do it. So we did a little concert of that. 
And um, that's the times I've worked with Kristen. I also tell you, you know the song Taylor the Latte Boy? Yeah. Boy? yeah. So when Kristen was gonna sing, Kristen was gonna be up here on Rosie O'Donnell's show and Rosie O'Donnell's show was pretty new. And she called me and said, Rosie O'Donnell's producers are turning down every song I come up with for them. I thought maybe I'll offer them um, um, uh, Taylor the Latte Boy. Can you fax it to the producer? And I said, all right, sure, Kristen, anything for you. Back to the producer. And, and she called me back and said, they like it. They want to do it, but I need a copy. Can you get me a copy? So I called my friends and said, watch Rosie O'Donnell tomorrow. I think Kristen's going to sing Taylor. And sure enough, there it was. And that was fun. And she's been good to me recommending me to her friends. Which so Sutton nice. was in class with me after I'd seen it, her. And, and, and then she says, I want to start working with you. So we started coaching. It was going really, really well. We were loving each other. I remember I walked her home after class at 11 o'clock at night on September 10th, 2001 oh. and, and 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 actually they're about to do dream girls the concert of dream girls and her sister-in-law jen cody wanted really wanted to see it i wanted to take her but she was in urine town and couldn't go so Sutton and i would spend time like she came back to me after she was really famous came back to me because she was working on a, a carnegie hall concert where she wanted to meet i was anal with her about she was working on um some Rodgers and Hammerstein from Carousel. And I was being really saying, well, the rhythm really goes this. Nobody ever sings it this way, but this is what it really is. And, you know, because that's, as I told you, that's how I am. But I love, and we, Sutton decided to do a show called Sutton Foster, The First 15 Years, where she was talking about growing up and having recordings of her when she was 10 years old. And we started working on it, but then she started working with Michael Rafter, who was married at the time to Janine Tesori. And he was the conductor of Thoroughly Modern Millie. And she said, you know, Michael really makes more sense. And I was like, totally get it, no problem. So Michael has been her pianist ever since Millie for almost 20 years. But I love working with her. And whenever I say, I've helped her with sheet music to this day, she'll come to me. So I so want I, to ask a little more about your involvement with the York Theater, which we mentioned with Billion Dollar Baby. So have you helped them get sheet music for other revivals they've done? or Not, not so necessarily much. with shows, but... I did, I've done displays of my sheet music outside the York. Jim Morgan will come over here to my apartment. They did a display where we wanted to do one degree of music to another. So we had passion, the sheet music from passion. And next to it, we had the sheet music to a song from Lost in the Stars called Big Mole. Because if you know, Fosca has a mole on her face. So, uh, and it was all lined up and down the, 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 the walls of the York. And Sondheim came. And, he, and Jim told me, Jim, Jim says, I said, these are all from Michael's collection because he, he was getting a kick out of all the connections that we did. I did the show I did before Billion Dollar Baby at the York. The Mufti I did first was called Carmelina. And I took over for a, there was a musical director named Barry Levitt who was doing it. He couldn't do it. So I took over. And Carmelina was the last show. What we, we actually it was revised by Barry Harmon, who wrote Romance, Romance the lyrics. And he was re rewriting a lot of new songs. Debbie, she was known as Debbie Shapiro Gravit back then. She was our lead with PJ Benjamin, who later played the Wizard in Wicked on Broadway. And um, we did, we had a wonderful time doing it. it. It's been done twice again at the York since then. I think it's a terrific score. Burton Lane was around and involved and a champion of mine. I would run into him with his wife and this is Michael. He did Carmelina for you. He said, oh yes, you were very good. I was like, thank you, Burton. So. And uh, that was a, a thrill experience, great experience. I actually remember Ken Bloom knew Burton very well too. And we talked about it, but I actually have the original sheet music in Burton's hand to the last song he ever wrote, which he wrote for our production of Carmelina. And that was a pleasure. So I haven't, I mean, they've gone to me since when they've done Carmelina, subsequently at the York, the musical director goes to me and says, 
do you have, I said, yes, I have the whole score because I did it in 1996 and I've saved my score. So I guess, yes, the answer is yes, I have given the music. When they're doing a Mufti though, they usually get the licensed score. I know when they did um, Wish You Were Here, which takes place at a summer camp and there's a swimming pool. There was a song that was cut from the show that David Kirshenbaum, who was musically directing it, who wrote Summer in 40, uh, 42. He said, do you have this cut song? We've been talking to Bob Merrill's widow and she doesn't have it. Or, or Harold Rome, Harold Rome, Wish You Were Here. Maybe it wasn't Wish You Were Here. I don't know. But either way, I didn't have the song and I couldn't find it and they, they had it transcribed. I mean, the thing is, if there's a recording, when I get asked for something, I get a little apoplectic if I don't have it here in my collection. And I say, okay, here are some names of some terrific transcribers. As long as you have a recording, you can always have it taken down and do, and, and it'll probably be a better version than the floppy lead sheet that may exist in the past. So I often recommend people to, for lead sheets or for transcribers if you can't get it original. So you are, of course, a great vocal coach as well, but I do want to ask you who have been some of your coaches over the years in terms of singing and playing? Well, as I said, Peter Howard really taught me about conducting and being, and Peter and I did a, a two piano, two grand pianos on the Kennedy Center stage, Rogers and Hart Review with Mimi Hines in 1996. And uh, Peter taught, so he did teach me some basic conducting and I learned that. I haven't pursued conducting as much, but what I learned, I learned from Peter. As far as acting, I think immodest, I think my smarts as an actor come to play when I work as a coach, but a lot of the things I tell my students, I learned from my friend Roger Sturdivant. He's been, he was really, he used to teach a wonderful class with truly the creme de la creme of top Broadway talent. People who of a certain age can tell you who was in that class. And he knew exactly what to do. Tell them the right kind of songs to sing, what to do. I think I've gone far further as I've coached over the years. I think trial and error, I've seen things that work and have developed. But the people I've learned from, I think are a, a fairly small group. It's these people who I've learned from the most. Roger and Peter, I think would be the, the biggest one. So when you are coaching, do you like to recommend some of the rare music that you have as audition songs? Yeah, I mean, theoretically, it's a big question about what kind of songs to recommend. They, they say, James Lapine told me that Stephen Sondheim likes to hear songs that he knows already. And actually, uh, I heard an interview with Nancy Opel the other day where she said he doesn't, he wants to hear songs he knows. So I thought, yes, I want it. So, so there's an argument for not doing lesser known songs. The reason I will often propose a song that you might not know is so that you won't be the 10th person in any given hour to sing Will He Like Me or Vanilla Ice Cream, but you'll be some, do something that, we, that will shake us up so we won't go, you, you announce your song and they go, boy, this has been, we've heard, this is what I call the song du jour, song of the day, song I know I can hear any times in a given hour, much less a given day. There are certain songs that we hear a lot. That said, there are a lot of songs that are well known that just aren't sung a lot. Um, like, do you know Love Me Tender? Love Me Tender is an Elvis Presley song. It was in All Shook Up. And it's a well-known song, but nobody sings it. There are tons of songs like that. So I will potentially show them fun songs. I know that Mark Kudish used to go in with pretty lesser-known songs, and Sondheim would be sitting behind the table, Mark told me, and he and Hal Prince would go, gee, I wonder what that is. I bet it's, it's something Mark will tell us. Yeah, right. There's a cup song from Still Pier or something crazy like that. But I like, I, I, I will recommend, it, the reason, I mean, it's obscure. I don't want to give a song that's obscure because if it's obscure for a reason, because it's not very good, then why would you want to do it? But some songs are obscure just because the show was not successful. The song was cut. For some reason, people just don't know the song. And if I can show them 
that there's use in a song that's funny or poignant. It doesn't have to be an up-tempo. It could be, although I would always lead with an up-tempo in an audition, but a song that, that, that maybe shows a different side of you that they may not know. However, what Roger used to tell me would be to identify your song in the intro so they don't spend the whole time of the song going, what do you think that is? I think it's maybe from some obscure movie. We'll ask Michael when he's done with it. What was that? Yeah, I told you it was that too. Oh, thanks. You were very good. They're not even listening to this to you. They're just trying to figure out what the song is. So you get it out of their way at the beginning so they can concentrate on paying attention to you. If the song overshadows you, then it's probably not a good song to sing. So it's got to be a good song to show you off. That's the most important thing. So it could be lesser known. It might not be. But as long as it accentuates who you are. So what do you do if someone who you're teaching is very set on doing a particular song but are not so great at singing it? I try to find songs that have a limited range and I'll try to find the right key. With the advent of websites that change keys now, you can do a song in any key you want. For example, the girl I just worked for, worked with is working on If I Loved You, and it might be too high for you. I said, look, when you work with your voice teacher, figure out the right key, we'll change the key. So you can always change the key to bring it down. However, if the song has such a wide range that the high note, no matter how low you bring it, it's either going to go too low or too high and not be able to sing the whole song. And you want to find a different song that has a smaller range. There was a, uh, a movie, I know, and a voice teacher had to coach this guy who had very limited range and find a good song. And there's a song called the One Note Samba. And it's a song that literally lies on the same note. <clears throat> can you think of a song that goes back and forth between two notes and never deviates between those two notes for the first half of the song? No, I can't. I know. Just, just, just in time from Bells Are oh, Ringing by Camden oh. Green and Julie Stein goes, just in time, I found you just in time before you came my time. Up oh, so far, it's never deviated from those two notes. Then it gets a little higher, but that's a song with a limited range. So you could, you could be able to play it, have somebody sing it. They wouldn't need to have some big range if you can find the right key. So that's, if I find somebody whose voice is not great, sometimes I, like, sometimes I do work with kids. And there was one time I had a, a kid who was 10 years old. He was, he was so excited to be in the theater. Or maybe it was a girl, I can't remember. Red hair, you know, wide-eyed, and just could not sing. I mean, could no matter what I did. But his mother kept wanting to bring him back. And I said, I think you need to go to a voice teacher and work on your technique. Maybe some voice teacher can miraculously show you. I think your voice is a muscle like any other muscle you train. And the more you work with a voice teacher on strengthening your voice, the better you're going to sound. I bring up several students of mine. I had a wonderful student named D.B. Bonds. You should meet him. D.B. was a, the best guy in the world. And he was my assistant kind of for a little while. And he was a, a solid baritone, good baritone with a nice, rich baritone voice. He went off to work with Joan Later. Have you heard of Joan Later? Oh, yeah. And Joan's a good friend of mine. She's, you know, the top voice teacher. And he worked with her for a while. And he came back here and he started singing something. I was like, look, I don't know how that's going to go. It's a high key. And, and he was amazing. And it was much higher than he ever could sing. I'm like, wait a minute. How are you doing that? He said, I work with Joan. And he was singing high, you know, A flats, which he never had more than an F or an F sharp. I was like, and I can tell you other people who, like that who have gone to work with a voice teacher and you strengthen the muscle, you can find yourself singing better. If you have pitch problems, it's hard to get past that because all the voice teachers in the world aren't going to let you keep from singing flat or sharp. I think there are ways around that. I often say that singers, musical theater performers, either have that certain je ne sais quoi, they have that certain something, and they come into the audition and we go, they're great, they're amazing. 
or they could do anything and it doesn't matter. They're just not going to get it. All the acting training in the world. I often say, I'm not saying a conservatory is a waste of time. Far from it. And conservatories are terrific. So are acting schools. But I often think there's an argument, and I can tell you people who just moved here right out of high school or moved here after a liberal arts education and started pursuing the theater and did really well, became stars. I can bring up a great guy, Curtis Holbrook. You know that name? Curtis Holbrook was in the original cast of All Shook Up. He came to me when he was 17. No, he got his first start on Broadway when he was 17 in Footloose. And then he went on and did a lot of stuff. Somebody told him to go to me. And he came to me and he was wide-eyed and so eager. And I gave him this homework that I give all my students. And he sent me an email. Curtis Holbrook did his homework. I was like, oh, that's so great. And he just really did his work. But he came here right out of high school. And there are other people who came. I can name a lot of Broadway, a number of Broadway performers who didn't really do formal training. I'm not saying that people who do formal training, I can name lots of major Broadway people who've trained in a conservatory or Juilliard or whatever and, and, and do great. But I think a lot of people can, that's another way to go. To take private voice lessons, private acting lessons when you first moved to New York right out of high school is another way to go. Yeah. So, so who do you consider to be some of the best singers in accordance with what you try to teach in your lessons? It's not only the, who the people are, but it's what they're singing. There are certain <clears throat> composers and lyricists who write songs that really, if you are a good actor, you're going to make sense of it. Obviously, Stephen Sondheim, but also Bach and Harnick. Um, <clears throat> there are a number of Strauss and Adams, some of Strauss and Adams, Malpe and Shire, even some Kander and Ebb, where you can, it can show you to be a good actor from learning that way. I think if you look at, it's probably, it would be an obvious choice of people, like Audra McDonald would probably be, my first about making the lyric count and really taking the time. I've had some singers I've worked with who have taken the time to prepare for an audition and really gone over the song and worked on every beat. And I'm like, man, that really, really works. You know, you know exactly what you're doing, how to make that work. I mean, I would say Sutton probably does that every time she's taking a song. She really takes time to, to learn her songs and, and know them well. And Kristen, but, but a lot, but it's some of the, I mean, I'm talking about great people, you know, the top, top people. Melissa Erica, she's another one who really takes the time. And I've done, I've helped her out a lot. We've I've done some shows with her, but I've also helped her a lot with sheet music. When she was doing a Sondheim, and we spoke on the phone for like three hours about all things Sondheim. And uh, she, uh, she really takes the time to make every lyric count, make everything really, really work. And, I, and Nathan, I know you don't know, she's not as famous, but she no, is somebody who will take, we, I played, you know this song, See What It Gets You from Anyone Can Whistle by Stephen Sondheim? This driving song, and I played it for her for audition for something for Cantor and Ebber. I think Cantor and Ebber were in the room and I had to play piano. I was like, oh, freaking out. But she took, we took that song apart and every beat really made it land. And she's great. She, she's really, another. there are a bunch of people, a lot of people who really take the time and they're people you want to work with. When you can see on stage. I mean, there's some people I've gone to on Broadway. I've seen a performer, I'm not going to name names, but where I'm standing a little, sitting in the audience a little too close to them. And I just see them going, da 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 nothing going on. I'm like, why did I pay this money? I don't want to see you ever. But then there are performers. Oh, Megan Hilty. I used to coach Megan Hilty all the time. She's somebody who takes the time. When we saw her, I saw her in Los Angeles at nine to five before it came in. And I took a friend and he said, I will see you in anything you do because you're exactly, you epitomize Taking time. Also, Stephanie Block. I used to coach Stephanie Block all the time. She's somebody who also takes the time to really let everything. So it's obvious, probably obvious people that you think of. But those are the people who I've worked with who are popping back into my head now. So if you're coaching a song for a long time or playing in the pit of a show for a long time, um, how do you sort of avoid getting sick of hearing the song? 
it's a good point. And I, the thing is, I've never done a run long enough to get bored by a show because Little Mermaid was in a, a like 3,000 seat theater. So we only ran for one week. So by Sunday, I was like, oh, why can't I have another week of this? It was great. And I was still trying to get my hand. I mean, at, between us, intermission, not between us, you can tell people, but at intermission, Emily Skinner would come up to my dressing room and go, Michael, Poor Unfortunate Souls, or my other song, you, you got to be right. It's got to, it wasn't right there. And then she came one day and said, that was it. I said, thank you, Em. And because I knew her already. And um, uh, I'll tell you about Emily Skinner. The first day of rehearsal for Full Monty, before they went to, to San Diego, she sent me the entire score, which had all these cut songs. There's some great cuts. I'm a big David Yazbek fan. And there's a song called The Hard Way about, um, I won't say what it's about because in, in, in mixed company, but in, you're too young to know what it's about. But it, it was a really funny patter song sung by all the men. And there's a song called Red Camaro that was sung by Patrick Wilson. It was replaced by man. There's a song called Made of the Mountain, it was by, by, which I think has been recorded. But she had all these songs in her score. And I was like, oh my God, this is so exciting. But Emily's one who, when I do, I, think, I guess the longest run, I'm trying to think what the longest run of a show I've had. I did a Sophie Tucker show, but it wasn't conducting an orchestra. I was conducting a band and I was playing piano in Denver. It was a Sophie Tucker show starring Sharon McKnight called Red Hot Mama. And we ran around seven weeks. So I guess that's around the longest I've been with a show. And it was so much fun. I was singing and acting and playing piano. That was kind of different. But I guess if I had to conduct, that's why I sat in the pit for Phantom of the Opera. And of course, I love Phantom. I went to see Norm, took me to see him in it. I've seen it a lot over the years. But I, my friend Guy Simpson, I was kind of the Australian, hooked me up with Kristen Blodgett and David Caddick. One of the few times they were actually hearing pianists play to potentially give them a job working on Phantom. And I went in around 25 years ago and I played Think of Me. And they said, you are terrific. This is wonderful. I want to say it's think of me. It's ba da 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 da. It's like easy, easy, easy. But they were like, "This is amazing." I was like, "Okay, play, play, wishing you were somewhere here again." I was like, "Da da da." This is terrific. You're great. Wow. I was like, "Really? This seems so easy to me." I said, "You know what? We could send you because they had also heard good things." As I said, it's often word of mouth, and they'd heard great things about me from Guy. They said, "We could send you out tomorrow." on the national tour of Phantom, frankly, between after like six, eight months, you'd probably be conducting it. But I was about to go to London to do a, United, a UK tour of Noel Coward's Cavalcade all over the United Kingdom. And they said, if we were you, we'd do that. That sounds amazing. I said, yeah, I kind of want to do that. Well, I did that. Then I got back to New York and I sat in the pit for Phantom. I had this friend, Davis Gaines was at the time the longest running actor to play the Phantom. And I played his act in Hollywood at the Cinegrill where I did my own act years later. And David Lai, who was his musical director, was the associate conductor of Phantom and couldn't leave. So David said, you want to sit in the pit with me? And David was just the associate conductor. So he was sitting at the keyboard, kind of the easy part. So I sat in the pit and this hand dangled from the side. This hand kind of went like this and this. Every once in a while, there'd be a little fast thing. And then on the, on the cue from the conductor, he'd turn on a sequencer that went, do, 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 in sleep, he sang to me. And then he kind of said, he instinctively reached for a book and went, oh, um, we have a little downtime here. And I sat there watching him kind of smiling at me for like 10 minutes. And he turned off the sequencer and went back to the one hand stuff. And I thought, God, I'd rather stay home and watch Big Bang Theory. I mean, I thought, I thought, do I really want to do this eight times a week? I thought, no, even though, though that was the, 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 the path to becoming the conductor of the show, but I thought, do I really want to conduct Phantom eight times a week? I think that's when I decided, because I've never played in a pit for Broadway. I've sat in that pit, but I thought, I don't think, I, I think if I pursued 
conducting. I might have become a Broadway conductor, but I wouldn't have all the sheet music. I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing here, having the career, meet all these composers, do these recordings. So I didn't, that's the path of what I didn't take. And I didn't end up becoming a conductor on Broadway. So I haven't done long runs to know how boring it gets, but I can only imagine somebody who's been conducting Phantom for 20 years, finding ways to keep it interesting. I don't know what the answer is. You should ask somebody like Kristen Blodgett, who's in charge of Phantom musically. So another of the many things you've done is to be the pianist for the Outer Critics Circle Awards. So what is it like to be playing for an awards ceremony? It's fun. I, I started, my friend Simon Saltzman, who was a good friend of Roger's, I keep going back to Roger, you notice. Roger and Simon and I, we get together with Roger, Simon and his wife in New Jersey and sing through songs. And Simon was the president of the Outer Critics Circle for many, many, many years. And many years ago, he said to me, would you like to play piano. And the first year I was like, yes, I don't know. So I would play when the people came in and these were really famous people because it was the people who were winning. It was only the winners. The only, it's, a, it's a dinner upstairs at Sardi's and only the winners come. So the people who, so it's, everybody's a winner, you know, it's great. And they're all like, there's Meryl Streep, there's Kristen Chenoweth, there's, you know, Helen Mirren. It was ridiculous. And I, so I would play, I, 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 the first time I think I started bringing song books, like Big Bar, Big Broadway fake book, and the second time I thought, I just have to have these songs. I can play them all without music. I just have to think of titles. I'd be like playing a song going, what am I going to play next? I don't know what I'm going to play next. I have to think of a song. Okay, Gershwin, Biden my time. I'll play Biden my time. So I would be thinking of songs and then eventually I had a, a kind of set that I would do. But that, that's what I played when they came in. But then I had to play something after every winner. And that was the challenge um, to find something appropriate. If it was from the show, it was obviously I'd play from the show. But for example, um, when, when uh, 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 Hamilton won, I didn't, it was too early. It was because it won for Off-Broadway. It was before it moved to Broadway and because they give Off-Broadway awards. And I didn't think about calling Alex Lacamo, who I've known for years. And he said, I would have sent you like our little, you know, awards show medley that I put together. I was like, oh man. So I just started playing stuff from In the Heights. But, but what I did do that day is when Michael Cerberus came up to present an award, I played Swing Your Razor High, Sweeney. And then standing, sitting right in front of me were Lynn Manuel and his father. And they left up and went, Oh, you played from Sweeney Todd. You played from Sweeney Todd. Then Lynn came right up to me afterwards and said, You played that from Sweeney Todd. I went, Yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I was like, Yes. I don't know. I don't know what to say. But, um, but, I, but coming up with good ideas. And this is also riffs to, I played for 15 years. I was the musical director of the Broadway Bears, not B A R E S, but B E A R S, with the teddy bears that were made for Broadway characters every year. Brian Bad often hosted those. We would open with a parody that Roger used to write for people like Brian Bat. The first, the very first singer of that was Steve Ross. And he sang, bears are busting out all over. And he sang it with Heather McRae, whose father Gordon McRae had been in the movie of Carousel. So we would do parodies and play the parodies, but then I would play the, the bears on for the different shows. So when we got to, to plays, I had to think of a creative thing, way to play the play on. So they got to Lost in Yonkers, and I thought, what should I play for Lost in Yonkers? Can you think of what I, can you guess what I played? Mm, Hello, Dolly. Oh, good, so what song? What did I play, what song? Put on your Sunday. So no, the no, beginning, no. I, you're, you're exactly right, but I played oh. out there, there's a world outside of Yonkers. So that I did that, and sitting right in the front row, was Gordon Cannell, who was one of the leads in the original cast of Hello, Dolly. He was sitting with his wife, Jane Cannell, and he went, I heard this big laugh you hear throughout the room. Oh, oh, that's so fun, that's great. 
great, Rogers. So I was like, oh my God, I got, Gordon Canal got it. I, sometimes they didn't get it, but I would always try to find offbeat ways to play plays on. I can't really remember a lot of them, but there were so many over the years. And uh, I have celebrity messages. When a celebrity leaves a message for me, I'm probably saying this, they're never gonna leave messages anymore, but I will record it and put it, I have a cassette. The first 14 are all Adolf Green leaving messages for me. But one of them was the host one year, Richard Simmons. You know, Richard Simmons is oh. a fitness guy. And he left this message where he sings all these show tunes and I play it for people and nobody can guess it's him because it doesn't, they can't figure it out. But when I did the, the Outer Critics Circle Awards and one year Jerry Herman was the host, which was wonderful. And Jerry knew me and he, he was very gracious. But then, oh, then a couple of years ago or last year, last time I played it, I, I, had, I had gotten from some friends in the show some music from Tootsie. So I played, and Santino Fontana had to pick up his award early in the show because he had to leave early. This is one of the first awards. So I played him on with his big song. And, you know, I heard him, I saw him do a double take as I was playing it on. And he said, the first thing he said was, ladies and gentlemen, Michael Levine. I was like, oh my God, he said my name. Is you know. And then another time I remember that Janine DeZori said, she, when she won for something a long time ago, Fun Home, I guess. And she said, you know, they used to have these little cheese appetizers at Sardi's. And I remember them and I grew up at Sardi's and Michael Levine is here and I grew up with Michael Levine. And another, and later that same night I played Bridges of Madison County on with this song, and Jason Marble Brown got up there and said, Michael, what was that you were playing? I'm like, oh my God, they're all saying hello to me, which is nice. But, and, and, and Brian Cranston said, hey, there's a piano man over there. I like it when they, when they recognize me because I'm playing my little heart out trying to think of clever things to make them, make them go. Sometimes, I mean, they always tell me I do well, but I'm trying to think of, I sit there with the shows going, what can I play that play on with? Like I, I had all the Hadestown music, so that was fun. I remember I played Kristen on with Never from On the 20th Century when she went for that. As she was walking on, she was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. That's great. So it's fun. It's, it's, a clever, it's a clever job to be this outer critic circle guy because I love coming up with the, the, the cool songs when you don't have the songs from the show. I also can then go. So I went to Tom Kitt and said, can you send me some of the SpongeBob music so I can play, because it won several different awards, so I need several different songs. And he did. He sent me several different songs so I could play them on, which is fun. So, so another of the many things you do in the theater is you are a record producer. So how did you get started with this? Well, I got a call around 10, over 10 years ago from Bruce Yeko, who I'd known as a record producer of flop, of lesser known musicals, sometimes not lesser known musicals, but he had been producing since the mid 1970s. And Bruce said, I want to do some recordings of songs from your collection, lesser known songs from your collection. Why don't we have, call it, uh, we both, I, I don't know who came up with the title. Between us, we came up with the title Lost Broadway and More. And we called it And More, so it didn't have to be Broadway. It could be off-Broadway, it could be movies, it could be anything we wanted. And he had a bunch of stuff in the can that he'd recorded with me and with other pianists, and he wanted to put the first two volumes out on his own, so he just put them out with random recordings. And then volume three, which was the first one we began in earnest, I decided to fashion as a review I got my, my friend, one of my oldest friends, dearest friends, the best friends, David Cleaver. David worked at Applause Theater Books and worked at the Tribeca Performing Arts Center. And he was a walking encyclopedia of musical theater. He knew how to do this. He was great. We would work together on arrangements. And he said, let's open the song called Tomorrow's Good Old Days, which was cut from Good Time Charlie. Not that we're only going to do obscure songs, but let's fashion this as a review. You'll have an overture, you know, opening number and all this. And we'll do the show. I'm going to call it. I'm going to call the CD. Michael Levine and Friends, get it? So I called him Michael Levine and Friends. And I got, um, so Christine Petty came to me and she said, I want to go to Sheldon Harnick and get, have him sing, can he pick five songs that he'd like us to record? 
So I said, Sheldon, can you come up with these songs? And Sheldon came up, actually, I have his voicemail here saying where he picked the songs. One was the title song from A Wonderful Life, which he sang with Christine. One was you, I Couldn't Be With Them, Anyone But You from A Wonderful Life, which Michelle Ragusa, wonderful performer, sang. One was uh, uh, A Butcher's Soul, which is a cut laser wolf song that Sheldon was going to sing himself. And one was, um, and there were two more, I'm blanking on what they were, but we recorded five. Oh, one was uh, uh, You Could Have the Richest Man in Town, which is a cut model Kamsoil song. Now this is long, this is 10 years ago, long before Yiddler, the Yiddish Fiddler recording came out and they did all these numbers again with an orchestra. So this was just me and piano. But I was at John Simon's birthday party. John Simon, who just passed away, the critic from the New York. I was friends with his wife and friends with John. He lived across the street. And I went up to, uh, and at the party, I saw Austin Pendleton, who was the original model Kamsoil. And I went up to him and said, I'm doing this recording. And I was going to sing it myself, but Austin just looked at me and said, I could do it. And I was like, really? So he came over to my apartment with Sheldon and Sheldon was coaching him. He said, it's like davening. You could have the richest man. And Austin was like, I got it. So Austin went in the studio, was telling us wonderful stories. And then Sheldon came in and sang. And then Christine found a song that was cut from, from uh, Take Me Along. You know the musical Take Me Along, which is a musical of Our Wilderness by Bob Merrill. The song is called, If Jesus Don't Love You, Jack Daniels Will. And it was a very funny song. And it was, I think it was a solo, but I said, why don't we do this as a quartet? So we went into the studio with Christine Petty, Michelle Ragusa, myself, and Sheldon Harnick singing harmony. And the four of us do that number on the CD. So I, was, I opened the number, the, the CD, with the overture, with an overture, which is an instrumental version of a song called Thank You for Coming. Do you know what that song is, Charles? I don't. Thank You for Coming was cut from Merrily We Roll Along. And it's the song they sing when they're in the club and, and, it's, and they're, and they're at thanking the audience for coming. So it's a good closing number. So I sang the song at the end of the CD as a closer, but I played it instrumentally as an opener and it was really fun to do. And I love putting this together. So then we, we were on to another CD and David, David came up with a lot of ideas, David Cleaver. So he said, why don't we do Julie Stein and Comden and Green either with each other or with other collaborators? So we did a lot of Julie Stein, like Comden and Green wrote a show called A Doll's Life with Larry Grossman. And we got Mark Kudish to sing a beautiful song that's on the CD, original CD, but it's not recorded, sung the way it's really written. So we did the entire song. We had Leslie Kritzer, who was my assistant for a while, singing um, Funny Girl. The song was cut. There's, there are two songs called Funny Girl. One was cut from the movie. One was cut from the show. We sang, she sang the one cut from the show. We had Christine Petty singing um, um, the song... Uh, I did it on roller skates, which is the song for the for the poster. You know the poster of Funny Girl. It's a woman upside down with roller skates. That's the song that was cut. So we did a. It was a lot of Julie Stein and Compton Green. But the the main purpose of this this series was to record songs that had never been recorded before. So we wanted to just record songs that, for whatever whatever reason, had never been recorded. We got John uh, John Jeffrey Martin, an actor who played, who covered the lead for the whole run of in Kinky Boots, to sing a song called. Um, Temporary Arrangement. Temporary Arrangement was cut from Funny Girl, but then when Johnny Desmond, the actor, went onto the national tour of Funny Girl, he was a big name. So they wanted to give him a song, so they put the song back in. John Jeffrey Martin happens to be, wait for it, the grandson of Johnny Desmond. Oh. So I got Johnny Desmond's grandson to sing Temporary Arrangement. That was exciting. So we, I was really proud of that CD. And then after that, we did a Jerome Kern one. I've done a bunch of other ones, and I have a lot of songs in the can. There are two current volumes that recently came out. Bruce and I came parted ways and he's put these recent out without my 
approval because he just has the unmixed versions of the songs. But I've spent a fortune and hours and hours mixing and mastering these songs. So when I put them out, they're going to be so much better quality. And I riffed off this. I decided to do a CD of old 20s and 30s songs. Famous. The most obscure song being like Toot Toot Tootsie. Really, really famous songs. And I did one piano. I did another piano. I did a third piano. So very elaborate piano copy. My friend at the studio played drums for free on it. I, I put a bass line with a synthesizer. And Bruce Yako, to his credit, said to me, you know, why don't you get some of your famous friends to record songs, duets with you, from songs of the 1920s or 30s shows that have never been recorded before. So I got nobody you've ever heard of, Laura Osnes, Rebecca Luker, Daisy Egan, and Heather McRae to sing songs, duets with me from shows you've never heard of that have never been recorded before. And that was really fun. I haven't put that out yet, but it's ready. It's been in the can for many, many years. And I look forward to you hearing that because I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with the way that turned out. Yeah. And that's been my recording, but I also did this Marvin Hamlish CD called Hamlish Uncovered with Craig Carnelia. We decided to go together to produce an evening, a CD of nothing but songs that had never been heard before by Craig Carnelia, about Marvin Hamlish. And we got Marvin's widows of permission. We had blanket permission to go and I basically went to his old copyist in Los Angeles, Joanne Kane's office and played Supermarket Sweep. Literally could go around copying anything I wanted and have all this obscure Marvin Hamlish stuff. We got people like Kelly O'Hara and Tony Sheldon, really wonderful performers. So you can get that on Amazon. That's a terrific CD that I think is full of wonderful, wonderful performance. All, most of these are just me on piano. That's, so I've done a lot of recording and really enjoy it. It's great. So about that um, Hamlish Uncovered, did you know Marvin Hamlish before he died? I only met him once. I played one audition for Sweet Smell of Success, which was more or less a dance call, but I had to play Welcome to the Night, his song from Sweet Smell, and he came over and sat with me at the piano was showing me what to do. The only time I spent with him, but my best friend, Stephen Brinberg, you know Stephen Brinberg makes a living impersonating Barbara Streisand. Stephen toured with Marvin for years, so I heard so many stories. And Stephen, on what would have been Marvin's 75th birthday a year and a half ago, we produced a concert. He produced a concert at 54 Below, of Marvin Hamlish with Penny Fuller, your best friend Penny Fuller, and a lot of other wonderful, wonderful people. And uh, Rupert Holmes, Craig Carnelia, Craig's daughter Daisy, really great, Leah Horowitz, Aaron Davey, you know Aaron from Grey Gardens and Night Music. Um, so really great. And then we did it this almost exactly a year ago, we did it in Los Angeles in Hollywood, where I got 94-year-old Alan Bergman to read a letter from Barbara Streisand written for us. And then Alan sang The Way We Were. And we had Nancy Dussault and you know, really, Eileen Graff, really, really wonderful, wonderful people. And that was great. So I've done a lot with, with Hamlish. It's as if I feel like I've known him because I, I went down to see Nutty Professor and was there like three days after he died. That's when I met his widow, who's lovely, Terry Hamlish. He's so enthusiastic. It's great. I just love Marvin's work. There's a lot of songs you don't know of Marvin's that you should because, you know, Craig and Marvin wrote the score to, to um, 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 Bullets Over Broadway. They were originally hired to write original songs for Bullets Over Broadway, and they wrote a lot, and they're great songs. They can't be done because of licensing issues, because then Woody Allen replaced them and decided to use old 1920 songs that were out of copyright, which I provided for Glenn Kelly, the musical supervisor for Bullets Over Broadway. And there you have it. Your Lost Broadway series, if you don't mind the comparison, seems a little like um, Ben Bagley's series of... so. Well, actually, when it first came out, we were compared to, Bruce Kimmel compared us to his Lost in Boston series, or his Unsung series, Unsung Sondheim and all that. But yes, <clears throat> I actually never met Ben Bagley, but I got a call from him after I inherited Arthur, because Arthur Siegel was the pianist on many of the Ben Bagley albums. 
And actually, after Arthur died, Ben called me once and said, I want to get some sheet music for me. I said, gladly, Ben, whatever you need. And then I have all of his CDs. And we wanted to do something. They are wonderful. And I think, yeah, I, I would say my Lost Broadway, because, yeah, everything Ben recorded were things that had never been recorded, too, right? Yeah. So that's true. You're, you're right. That's a good analogy. Yeah. So do you have any new ideas or upcoming albums that you're doing? Well, I want to continue doing this, this Lost Broadway idea because I have one called Lost Broadway, The Jews, which is all Jewish themed. I'm actually calling it, Robert came up with the idea of calling it Hold On To Your Yarmulkes, because you know there was a show, show called Hold On To Your Hats by Burton Lane. So, um, I, I, and I think it's great. I'm going to call it that. It's actually finished. I've got this, the CD ready to go. I just have, I've even mixed everything. I just have to finish. I might want to do where I've done songs from the education of Hyman Kaplan. If you know that musical from 1968, there's a show called, you probably don't know called laugh a little, cry a little think Jewish laugh a little, cry a little. It's by Rob, Gary William Friedman, who wrote the me nobody knows. It played in 1974 out of town and it was conducted by Peter Howard. And it's a, these are fantastic songs. The lyrics are by Arnold Horwitt, who wrote Plain and Fancy. You know the show Plain and Fancy. And um, it's, I, so I'm looking forward to putting that CD out of all Jewish themed. I have, a, I have a, one entire CD of nothing but Dietz and Schwartz, either with each other or with other collaborators, like I did with the Condon, the Green, and Julie Stein album. And I have, I have a CD of, of Lost Broadway and more goes to the movies where I'm doing all movie songs that were never released for one reason. These are a lot of these are ideas David Cleaver came up with. We have some very lesser known Harold Arlen, terrific songs by Harold Arlen that are great with great, if I say so myself, wonderful arrangements that I came up with and just random songs from the 30s and 40s that I've found. I spent a lot of time at the Library of Congress because I'm from Bethesda, Maryland and I would go to the library for years and just copied to my heart's content, wonderful songs that were not recorded that you can find there. And I think just getting them out there so people know they're great songs. You don't always have to sing Vanilla Ice Cream or Will You Like Me or Tonight Date or She Loves Me for every audition. Not that those aren't the best songs in the world, but you know, there are other choices, like songs that were cut from She Loves Me. <laughs> so before we get to your large sheet music collection, I want to ask about some of the composers that you've had friendships with. So how did you usually get introduced to these people? You know, everyone has a different story. I'll start going back almost 30 years. I did a show in Miami Beach 34 years ago called Life Song. And one of the girls in it was named Rebecca Renfro. I, I love dearly. She's in Florida now. She had been in the original cast of Bring Back Birdie. And, she, and we started working and kind of writing a song together. And she had stayed in touch with Charles Strauss and said, let's go over to Charles's office and sing it for him. And I was good 30 years ago. I went over to Charles's office. And over the years, I've kept up with Charles and, you know, got to know him. That's how I got to know Charles. But going back even before that, when I was at Columbia, I was in a show in a, in a production of Macbeth, the Scottish play, um, when I was 18, uh, playing the porter. And... Uh, the girl playing Little Macduff with a, with a wig, her name was Jane Dorian. Jane's mother, Carol, had gone to college with Jerry Herman and was Jerry's best friend and sang all of Jerry's backers auditions over the years. You can ask Ken Bloom about Jane Dor Carol Dorian and Jane Dorian. And um, so J Carol fell in love with me when she saw the show and she, said, and she said, I want you to come over to dinner with Jerry. I was like, okay, imagine being 18. I said, come over and meet Jerry Herman. I was like, yeah, okay. Maybe I was 19 by then. And... I went over and we had dinner and Jerry loved me. We totally hit it off. And over the years, the one thing I know Jerry always said to me, no matter when I saw him, was like, Michael, 
you look exactly the same as you did when you were 18. I was like, thanks, Dave. <laughs> but my favorite story, going to Carol's apartment, and, and I met Jerry in a stretch limo, and, the, and Jerry and Carol and I went out to Paper Mill Playhouse to see Mac and Mabel with Janet Metz, and, um, and, when, and Jerry kept nudging me during songs. I was like, oh my God, this is incredible. And then he said, I'll be right back, and he disappeared. Then he came up on stage after the curtain calls and put his arm around the two leads and walked theatrically upstage as the curtain fell. And it was great. And, uh, but I also wrote, when I was told, Dave, my friend, same friend David Cleaver told me back when I was 18, he said, write letters to Stephen Sondheim because he's very good at writing back to you. So I wrote him a letter. I told him, I mean, it was a long letter and he responded with a long letter responding to the things I'd asked about. He said, I'm starting work on a new show where the entire cast is going to be ages 12 to 16, called Merrily Roll Along. That was his original idea. But he said, then as the ages got a little higher, he said, you should audition. If there's one show you should audition for, it's Merrily Roll Along. And if you've seen the movie, The Best Worst Thing That Ever Happened, yeah, go yeah. see it again on Netflix because 20 minutes into the audition, in 20 minutes into the movie, they said, then we had auditions and they cut to a 19 year old Michael Levine singing Johnny One Note at my audition for Merrily Roll Along because oh. I got up very early in the morning. I stood online, went to the Minscott Rehearsal Studio, signed up, sang Johnny One Note. And Paul Gemignani stopped me. You can see it all happens in the movie, what you see. And, and said, so go to the end. And I went to the end. And he said, that's great. I knew I didn't get called back, but I had a lot of fun. I had great. I called Sondheim and said, I had a great time. I, you know, I know I didn't get called back, but I think everybody else was calling him saying, I'm number 1300. You have to get me a better, never, better job or never and all that. But that was a fun situation. So I, was, I have around 100 letters from Sondheim over 40 years asking various questions about getting music and things like that. Like I noticed when I'd seen Sweeney Todd back then that I'd heard the, the judges, the soon line from the judges cut Joanna song, even though the song had been cut, I heard that line in a, in a scene change. And Zondheim wrote me and said, I don't think I have that in the, in the show at all. And then when I first met him, I pointed out where it was. He went, oh, you're absolutely right. It is still in the show. I was like, yeah, yeah. So, and now one of my loves is, is a man named Hugh Martin. Hugh wrote um, Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas, Clang, Clang, Clang with the Trolley, The Boy Next Door, all the main main St. Louis songs. I had a friend named Bruce Pomahack. I have a friend named Bruce Pomahack who was an orchestrator. When I was a freshman at Columbia, they did Fly With Me. Fly With Me was the varsity show that Rogers and Hart wrote in 1920 when they were at Columbia. And in 1980, they decided to do the 60th anniversary of Fly With Me. And when they had auditions, Richard Rogers was still alive and he was going to work on it but he died before we, they went in. And I played my girlfriend's audition for it, but I didn't audition for some stupid reason. I don't know, I, immodestly, I think I would have gotten into it. But I did play piano for rehearsals and got an A plus and four points in production workshop and got on the Dean's list, I think because of that. So Bruce Pomhack was the orchestrator and he would come, we'd all say, oh, Bruce Pomhack's coming to be in our best behavior. And then I became friendly with Bruce. And years later, he said, look, if you ever want to meet Hugh Martin. I went, if I ever want to meet Hugh Martin, seriously? He said, sure, he's a friend. You can give your, you have to drive down to Encinitas, which is near San Diego, if you're in LA. I said, I go there all the time. I always drive down to San Diego. He said, okay. So I arranged to go down in maybe 25 years ago to visit Hugh. We fell in love with each other. He was the most genteel man from Alabama. He called me and said, hi, Michael, it's you. How are you? And I go, Hugh, I love you because I just love so much of his songs, so many of his songs. What, you know the Meet Me in St. Louis stuff, but the other things he wrote, wonderful, wonderful songs. And Roger Sturdivant was a big fan and knew everything about Hugh. So Roger had introduced me to all things Hugh. And on one of our trips, I took Roger to Hugh and they loved each other because Roger remembered a song from Hazel Flagg. Hazel Flagg's a musical by Julie Stein. And Hugh was the vocal arranger. And, and Roger said, 
Oh, I remember there was a title song. I went, hello, Hazel. And he started singing. He went, oh, my God, sing that again. I wrote that because he had to ghostwrite the song because Julie Stein didn't have time to write the song. So they loved each other. And I loved Hugh. And I would go, Hugh would set me up at the grand piano with a microphone and ask me to entertain him and sing. So Roger and I would pick out lesser known songs from the 20s and 30s and sing songs to him that he didn't know. And he'd go, that's wonderful. So I said, let me sing a Craig Carnelia song. So I sang a song and Hugh said, Michael, I don't know those chords. Can you tell me what those chords are? And Craig, Craig loved that. And then I sang, I think so many people from Saturday Night by Sondheim. And I wrote Sondheim, so I just sang that for Hugh and he loved it. And he said, is there anything else of yours you'd like me to sing? And, and Sondheim said, would you sing him the rest of the score to Saturday Night? So I did and I sang, got to a wonderful song called Exhibit A, which is a patter song. And it's, it's very wordy and Hugh loved it. And after I finished, he said, Michael, can you come over here and read those lyrics to me very slowly? And I said, sure. But I love, he died just around a little over nine years ago at the age of uh, 96. And he was just the, a great guy, great man. So giving of his time and his talent. He would coach me like he used to coach Judy Garland in the Palace Theater. He would say, Michael, you're singing too loud. You're like over singing, which I think I tended to do. And learning to just kind of naturally sing and not sing too big, too big is a very good term because I got hooked up with Albert Marr. Have you heard that name? M-A-R-R-E? Mm -hmm. He was the original director of Man of La Mancha. And he, around 35 years ago, he had me over to, he was working on several projects and wanted me to work on them with him and sing, sing some backers audition. There was a song called, a show called The Prince of Central Park. You may know it, famous lesser known musical. And a song called, a show called Choo Chem by, by Mitch Lee and a show called Halloween, also by Mitch Lee. And he said, I want so I went and worked on them, came back, he said, God, you're singing too much. You're over singing. And then he kind of dumped me. Never got, I never got to do meet these, all these people I was going to do it for. So there you go. Sometimes these things happen. Well, I also want to ask you about your friendship with the great Adolph Green. I know you. The best. I mean, I, I did a show 35, everything's 35 years ago. Is everything 35 years ago? 35 years ago, I went to college with a guy named Noel Katz. Noel was a composer. <clears throat> he had done the BMI workshop with Lehman Engel. And he said, I want to do a show. And our friend Adam Belanoff, who later became a television writer, still is, said, I will direct it. My brother's going to produce it. We're going to do it at 62nd and Broadway at a theater called the Gene Frankel Theater. And it's called On the Brink, a review of stuff. And actually, we were going to solicit, originally, we were going to solicit other contributions from other composers also. So I thought, let me go to Stephen Sondheim and see if he has some young composer he wants to recommend. And he went, I can't think of it. I can't think of anybody. And then his secretary at the time, who I knew, she said, what about that kid who comes in and does computers for us? You know, he's, a, he, he's like a composer. So this kid come, guy comes over and he plays. I actually really liked his songs. We ultimately decided to keep it all Noel. But that guy, Steve Clark, became Stephen Sondheim's assistant during Into the Woods originally. And he's been there ever since. He's still there. And I knew Steve when he was just, you know, Steve Clark when he was just a computer guy. So we did Into the Woods. We had auditions and we decided to cast Amanda Green. Who we, I said, we were looking at the photos and we go, wait a minute. I know those teeth. That's Amanda Green. That's Adolph Green's daughter because she has her dad's teeth and her dad back then, you know, the big smile. And she was delightful and fun to work with. And we did the show and she and Adolph and Phyllis came to the opening night and they were delight, very sweet. And that was in 1985. Cut maybe a good 10 years. I had a student who was reading the newspaper to Adolph Green every day. He had macular degeneration, couldn't really see. So she would come and read the paper to him. And she was sick one day, so I can't go. Do you want to go and 
read the paper to Adolf? I was like, oh my God, yes. So we started doing that and he said, well, do you want to go to the piano room? I was like, okay. So I went to this big room with the piano and I start playing, we're singing. At the end of the time, he said, well, now how much do I owe you? I said, no, I have to pay you. But he was like, ah. So then, as I said, I looked across the street from Betty and Adolf would be working with Betty at, their, at her apartment and call and said, Michael, it's Adolf. I'm over at Betty's, it's raining out. Can I come over? And I'd be like, sure, come on over. So he kibitz with my last student of the day. He said, do it again and, and pay attention to the lyric. Like there's a, an actor you may know named Chris Diamantopoulos. Chris took over for Patrick Wilson and Fulmonte originally. He's now gotten into television a lot. He did Crazy Free, uh, Girl Crazy at Encores and with his wife, his real life wife. And Chris was going for his first coaching with me. He had just moved here from, from Canada. He was 22. I opened the door, this sweet kid. I said, hi, Chris. Oh, that's Adolph Green in the kitchen. He was like, what? Oh, my God. So Chris was like, Adolph said, why don't you sing one of my songs? And Chris was like, I love your songs, but I'm going in for a rock musical. So Adolph said, what about what's new at the zoo? Honk. He started singing what's new at the zoo from Do Re Mi. And, uh, but, but it wasn't really right for what Chris needed. But that was, that's my Do Re Mi story with Adolph. So Adolf would leave messages the first time I have all these celebrity messages. He would say, Michael, I think I left my hearing aid under your couch. Can you check for it? Or he'd always say, can we go to La Chinoise? La Chinoise is Shun Li, which is a Chinese restaurant up the street from me. One time we were there and this man comes up to us and says, are you the Adolf Green? And he said, well, I'm an Adolf Green. He said, well, I'm the Joseph Heller. He was the writer of Joseph Heller. We sat and chatted with him. And... Adolf and I, we would go to theater. We went to see the Beauty Queen of Lanan, where this, the, the lead character, this woman, kills somebody. We're in the front row center, and he looks at me and says, did she just kill him? Because he couldn't see, because he had macular degeneration. But it was funny. And when we did Billion Dollar Baby then, so I loved spending time. One time, I, I played for several years for the Drama Desk Awards. I would play as the audience came in, and I would play. And I saw Adolf and Phyllis come in at that LaGuardia High School, all the way to the top of the theater, the room. I saw them come in. I started playing Everland. And I saw Phyllis lean over and whisper to Adolf. And I saw him go, oh, Michael, hello, hello. You know, and of course, he signed all my sheet music. And I have photos with him here and everything. And he was the best. I wish I'd spent so much more time with him than I did. And Betty, too, who I loved spending time with, too. And I just want to ask you about one more writer, which is Lee Adams. Lee. So when I was at Columbia, Lee started teaching a class, a, a musical theater class, and I decided to take it. And I wrote my paper actually on Compton and Green for that class. When I was taking the class, Bring Back Birdie was in previews on Broadway. And we would go, I would go by myself, go to the box office and said, I want to buy a standing room. That was the code because they didn't have standing room at the Martin Beck, which is now the Hirschfeld. They didn't, so they would, for $5, he would sell me an orchestra seat marked standing room on the ticket. So I saw the show every Monday because it previewed for weeks. And I saw, and I knew it because Robin Morse, who I'd gone to French Woods with, Bobby Morse's daughter, played Cheetah Rivera's daughter in Bring Back Birdie. So I went backstage, would hang out with Robin, hear about songs that were cut, all the changes. Actually, Lee would tell us in class every week. Lee was such an elegant man, a handsome man, loved the class. He told, had told Sondheim how much he enjoyed teaching the class. And it was just a wonderful class where I learned, uh, one of my favorite stories is Alexander Haig was the Secretary of State at the time, but Albert Haig wrote Plain and Fancy. And Lee was talking about Al Haig, and somebody in the class said, the Secretary of State? And he went, no, no, Albert Haig, right? That was a funny story. But, but we went to, I went to opening night of, of Bring Back Birdie. Then Lee's wife was in a play off Broadway, and I went to it. 
I got a comp and I was sitting right next to Lee. And then I got invited to the recording session of Bring Back Birdie. So in class the next week, Robert Lee said to everybody, I don't know who this Michael Levine is, but he's everywhere. Every time I look around, he's in another room. So I haven't seen him in years. He's still around. He's 96, same age as Sheldon Harnick. And I would love to see him. Steve Ross and I are talking about driving up to visit him because I just have such fond memories of him. So I want to ask you, you sort of are friends with everyone, it seems like, in theater. And you've been doing this as long as I have. You get to know a lot of the actors and they, they know they can go to you for sheet music and, uh, and help you out. And I think, you know, I think that's why I've gotten known I guess. And I've been doing it long enough to, to work with a lot of different people who I love. Get to know these people. But I interrupted you. Sorry. Oh, no, yeah, no, so. no. So do you ever still get starstruck? Oh, absolutely. All the time. With, with Broadway people, sometimes I, I can't get the nerve up to go and talk to somebody. And I know I should. I know they probably go, oh, all right. I know you are. Right. Sometimes I will. But, but yeah, all the time. So I want to ask you one more question about all these composers, which is, would they ever allow you to go through their rare or unpublished songs? The different composers? Yeah. Well, they wouldn't let me necessarily go through them. Actually, you know who did was Hugh, Hugh Martin. When I first got to know Hugh, he had all his old machine music down in the, ba in, 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 on the lower floor of his house. So I would go down to the house, bring up big boxes like the Make-A-Wish box and just go through the box. I said, oh, I want a copy of this. He said, oh, I'll have my assistant copy that for you and do all that. Eventually, he had his music put somewhere, but he had all the music originally in boxes, and I would go up and play through the music. Um, most of the other composers, I could ask them for things. They wouldn't necessarily let me look through them. I know that Charles Strauss, his daughter's not having people up to, to see him or Barbara, his wife, because of COVID, but I could go down to the, maybe I might be able to get down to the basement where he's, and, and look through. I had a friend who was working for him who would get things for me when I needed them, because I was obsessed with a song called Don't Say F-A-T in front of Conrad because Bring Back Birdie was about fat Elvis. So they had an Elvis Presley impersonator who was a big guy and he kept gaining weight. And that song was cut in previews, but I remembered it so well and I really wanted the sheet music. So he sent me the lead sheet in Charles's own hand, which was fun. And uh, yeah, but, but other composers, I've been able to go to them often. Like I will go to Sheldon. He would sometimes go to Jerry Bach when he was alive and we wanted better versions of the cut songs from Apple Tree. I have around eight or nine cut songs from Apple Tree. And a lot of them are at the Library of Congress. If the composer has given their material to the Library of Congress, often it's there. For example, when I first started going to the Library of Congress many, many years ago, I looked up Company and Follies, and there were books full of cut songs. None of them had been published. Now you know all the cut songs. Even you, Charles, know all the cut songs from Company. But back then, nobody knew uh, a song called The Wedding Is Off, cut from Company or, 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 or um, Pleasant Little Kingdom, cut from Follies. But they were all in this book, in manuscript, in the, you know, a copy is 10, but you can just copy the book. And I had all these songs, The World's Full of Girls, cut from Follies. I mean, all these songs I knew very, very early, along with over 30 years ago. But now I will often say, figure out, because often I will have, get, get what I call a holy grail, a score or a song that I really have to find somehow. I don't know how I'm going to find it. For many years, it was Legs Diamond. And one day, the score just appeared, and we all had Legs Diamond score. But now, it's a, I, don't, I don't really have a, a holy grail at the moment, but often something will come up, and I'll be like, how can I get that? I need to get that song. So I try to think, should I ask the composer? Sometimes the composer says, oh, I don't have that. There was something called, I, I want to say Dandelion Wine, a show, show written by Billy Goldenberg, who just passed away recently. He wrote Ballroom. And I wrote to Billy a couple of years ago about it, and he wrote this lovely email back to me 
remembering the show. How do you know about that show? And he didn't make a, an effort to say, I have the score here. I don't think he necessarily even had it, but he did know what I was talking about. Like I was talking to Alan Bergman when I was there last year about something more, his Broadway, big Broadway musical in the 60s that starred Barbara Cook. And I know a lot of songs from that, including a cut song, a beautiful cut song called Better All the Time that we included on our Julie Stein Compton and Green album because Julie Stein produced something more, the show that the, the Bergmans wrote with Sammy Fain. We, David Cleaver kind of thought that Julie Stein may have written Better All the Time because it sounded very Julie Stein. So we had Leah Horowitz, the beautiful singer, sing that on our CD. So what composers of today do you admire as much as those Golden Age composers? I like Pasek and Paul. I think they write really smart songs. Um, they, 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 they know the importance of rhyming. A lot, a lot of composers today, lyricists today, don't necessarily believe in rhyming, and they will do what we call half rhymes. Good lyricists, of which there are plentiful. I think there aren't that many bad lyricists, but it's frustrating when you see a show and you just go, that didn't rhyme. That was, that's lazy writing. And there's a song that Steve Ross and I love by a guy named Bill Sally, another composer, passed away recently, called The World's in Rhyme. And the entire song is half rhymes. I'm in love and the world's in rhyme. It's amazing, the rhymes I find. So nothing rhymes, and it, which is funny to us. I sent it to Sondheim, I, said it, I sang it to Sheldon, I sang it to Hugh Martin, and they all loved it. I sang it to Adolph Green, he said, oh, it hurts, because it's a very, very funny song. But unfortunately, that's how people write a lot today. You look at something like Town, and nothing rhymes, or Muriel's Wedding, or, or Matilda, or... or um, uh, Groundhog Day, and nothing rhymes, nothing makes any even semblance of a rhyme, and lyrics are so much better. Funny songs get twice the laughs of his songs. I mean, Sondheim has said, I believe in print, that one of the single big, biggest reasons that a funny song doesn't get a laugh is because the audience doesn't understand the lyric. That's why I'm so on case about, with people about making sure we can understand everything they say and not being obscured by how you say the word. So I want to ask you next about your famous sheet music collection, which is one of the largest in the world. So what was the first score you bought? Where did this all start? Well, I know the first score was what I told you at Hanson's, that company score that I got for half price for $12.50, a long one when I was a kid. And then my parents had some music because my father played clarinet and saxophone. My mother played piano. But they had a little bit of sheet music that I would, you know, take hold of and, and, take, and take on myself through the years, and then I started collecting. When I got to Columbia, when I was 18, I started going through and just buying vocal selections when they came out and just thinking to myself, I have to have everything. One of those people like a record collector who has to have every record. I was like, I have to have every piece of sheet music. So I would just buy anything that came out whenever it came out and, and try to get single sheets. And then eventually it got kind of out of control, which it is now, yeah. So do you keep count of how much you have? No, no, no idea. People ask me that all the time. I don't have the faintest idea. You're welcome to come here and count them. <laughs> so what have been some of the hardest things for you to track down? You were talking about um, Holy Grails. For many years, it was a show called Away We Go. It was the title to Oklahoma. It was, oh. it was called Out of Town. And Away We Go, I, I had a, when I inherited Arthur's collection, he had a song called Boys and Girls Like You and Me from Away We Go. Boys and Girls Like You and Me was cut from Away We Go before it became Oklahoma. So this was a particularly rare sheet. And I had Celeste Holm and Joan Roberts sign it. Did you know that the original Ado Annie and the original Lori in Oklahoma died within two weeks of each other, both the age of 95 a few years ago? And um, 
so then it, after that, I was I wanted to get all the other songs from um, Away We Go, and now I have all of them. You know, Many a New Day, Sorry with the Fringe on Top. You know, all the songs people will say we're in love from Away We Go. So that was a pretty rare one. I recently was told of an early version of Mac and Mabel with a completely different logo. It's interesting when songs have shows have different logos and or different titles. For example, By Jupiter, the last Rodgers and Hart musical was called All's Fair. And there are several sheets with cover the cover of All's Fair. Roberta by Jerome Kern originally was called Gowns by Roberta. And I have a whole set of sheet music with Gowns by Roberta. Um, Much Ado About Love was a musical by Kurt Weill that changed its title to The Firebrand of Florence. And so a lot of these songs shows, so having both sets, sometimes with different artwork, so finding those things becomes an obsession of mine. I don't know if there's anything specifically that I was like, because I get these lists from collectors and I go through and I'm not necessarily, at this point in my collecting, I don't really have something I have to find unless I can, unless it's, you know. Do you still try to buy every new piece of sheet music as it comes out? Yes, if I can get it at a discount. My friends have different sources and he often get things that have price for me. But if that's the case, I'll just buy, go on a big buying spree when they come out. But also, I usually we find out because people say to me, hey, you know, the Jagged Little Pill selections just came out. And I'm like, ooh, that would be convenient to have because you want those arrangements of those songs that Tom Kitt did. So I do. Yep, I buy things when they come out all the time. So will you take something or buy something even if it's not in good condition? Or Yes, if it's something I don't have that I've always wanted, because I don't want it for the collecting capability. I want it to be able to play on the piano. If it's a, sub, a sub sheet that I really want to play, I'll just buy it and say, I don't, as long as I can see it visible, as long as it's not obscured and there's like, you know, X's through the music, I'll buy it. And, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll get, you know, sometimes pretty, some of my sheet music, that I bought in pristine condition, but it's been, I put it on the piano so many times, it's like falling apart. And I'm thinking, God, I remember how pristine this is in beautiful condition when I bought it, but they fall apart when, you, when you're using them a lot. Like the score to, for some reason, my selections to grind, the musical grind is in like falling, it's been signed by a lot of people, but it's also kind of falling apart. And I'm like, God, I remember when I, this seems like yesterday that I bought this for 6.95 at Colony, you know, when music is cheap. But I remember, you know, it's important to buy things now because they go out of print and they either become impossible to find unless you can find some collector who's selling their sheet music which sometimes happens then you can get things sometimes cheap sometimes that's why inheriting these big collections i'll tell you go go, holy grail for a while there's a book called the world of charles aznavour you know charles aznavour was the french singer and songwriter and there was a book the world charles aznavour was mostly english translations by pretty well-known people i think fred ebb and, and other people translated his songs and it was a book, I had pieces from the book that people had sent me, songs, but I really wanted that book. And when I inherited this collection of Elise Breton, that vocal arranger from 1776, I'm going to your collection, I went, oh my God, there's that world of Charles Aznavour. So sometimes things like that, when you inhabit, when you inherit or get by or, get, or be given an entire collection, there was another collection, I was telling you about Michael Kosserin, he had a friend who had just it was just a businessman but in collecting for years everything that frank lesser wrote had been signed by joe lesser his wife and it was an entire room in their apartment in 79th and third that i went to and i and she said and she said there are probably around three thousand pieces here i said i could just give you a dollar per piece and she went yep absolutely i'll do that i was like i've just committed myself to three thousand dollars i said well i'm going to send you 100 dollars a month for 30 months she said that's fine so i did that and it was fine and that was again 
But I had a lot of duplicates, but a lot of things I did not have that I was always looking for. Didn't even know I was looking for. Like a Bacharach and David book that has all these, around eight or ten, cut songs from Promises, Promises. So I've worked a lot with, I've worked a number of times with Jill O'Hara, and her sister Jenny O'Hara was actually in the Marvin Hamlin show we did in Los Angeles. And Jill came over and I had her sing some of those cut Promises songs because she knew them all. And they're only in this one Bacharach and David book that nobody could find, but it was in this collection. So sometimes things like that pop up and you're like, I've always wanted that. That's great. Sometimes you don't know what you want because you'll take, pull it out and oh my God, this book looks amazing. Like I have a bunch of books of TV themes, television themes going back to like, you know, a long time ago. I love looking through them going, wow, I didn't know this song had lyrics to it. Like Bonanza has lyrics, but a lot of songs had lyrics that you probably didn't know, which is kind of fun. Yeah. So is there any way in which you organize this big collection that you have? Several different ways. I have file cabinets when you first walk into the door, first walk into my room, into my apartment. I have big file, a bookshelf up above that has scores that are either English or older. Things like, like um, Perchance to Dream, but it also has Fantasia. Things that aren't like famous shows over there. And then behind that... A lot of loose, oversized sheets. I have all the Milliken show. You ever heard of the Milliken show? Yeah, yeah. Peter Howard lends them, and they were in a big bookshelf here. But now they're up here. So then below that are file cabinets that have all standards, alphabetical from A to Z, things that are not from a show or a movie. And that covers all. That becomes then composer files, starting with A, starting with like Carol Arlen. Aaron Lynn Aaron's going all the way to Z and that comes up to the file cabinets the main set of file cabinets and after I get to Z then it starts with A the first show starting with A and every show or movie is alphabetical from A to Z throughout the rest of the apartment there's also another bookshelf inside here that has all published scores there's another score shelf behind me here that has all local selections from shows and above that are collections of Broadway composers like Frank Lesser and Julie Stein and Maury Esten. It's all, it's all throughout the apartment in various ways. There's a big shelf of, of, of just alphabetical A to Z. People, some of them are pops, some of them maybe like Michael Feinstein's books, just A to Z all the way across. So I know various places, but you've got to know where your music is because if somebody says to you, hey, I want a copy of this song. You go, I know I have that. I have no idea where it is, but I know it's in my apartment. But I would say, yes, I know where it is. It's right here. And it's important to me to know where it all is. Because if you don't know where it is, what good is it, right? So do you ever think there might come a time where you'll run out of room? or? or oh, I ran out of room ages ago. I mean, I have, I have a storage locker downstairs that's packed to the rafters, and I can kind of move things around to get more things in there. I have piles of music here waiting to be filed, but my, I've been pulling out all the duplicates. I have a lot of duplicates. I have this enormous pile of duplicates under my television here that I have to send to a collector in New Hampshire who will sell them for me and possibly get me some money. So I'm constantly taking things out of my cabinets to try to make more room for new things to go in. But I'm constantly outgrowing it. It's really at the level, at the, like I heard Ken Bloom say something similar about his place. As you know, when I, when I first renovated this apartment to build these file cabinets, for the first three weeks of the renovation, I stay. I lived in the basement of Ken Bloom's apartment, that famous basement you've heard all about. Yeah. And then for the next five weeks, I stayed in Steve Ross's apartment. So you, you both, you've now interviewed two of the people I stayed with when, when I was renovating my apartment. So it was nice. Yeah, that's a funny coincidence. So what do you think are some of the rarest things that you have in your collection? 
Well, I have a, a, a one of the things that Arthur Siegel had is a hardbound, silk-bound copy of the vocal selections of Red, Hot, and Blue that's numbered and signed by Cole Porter in the back. And I showed it to Michael Feinstein when he was here. He said, oh, yes, mine's number 89. I said, all right, Michael, whatever, but mine's number <laughs> 189 or whatever. But then I have also have a similar thing of Hi Ho by Gershwin that's signed by our Gershwin numbered. I have that, that score of My Fair Lady that's signed by all those wonderful people involved with My Fair Lady. Those are probably the three. I mean, rare, it depends upon what's, who, who considers what rare. I consider those rare. I mean, the, the Red, Hot, and Blue is definitely rare because there are only 250 ever made. But getting, that's the score to My Fair Lady is not rare. What makes it rare is the signatures. So the fact that so much stuff here has been signed. When Terrence McNally was here, he signed my Ragtime and my Bulmati selections. And, um, so what's rare? I mean, that, those are the things I pull out. Oh, I have, a, I have all the published sheet music to a show called Finney's Rainbow, P-H-I-N-N-E-Y. Do you know that show? No. It was written by a 17-year-old Stephen Sondheim when he was at college. And I have all the sheets that I got from the various collectors. I also have not an original, but a Xerox of All That Glitters, which was the other college show that Stephen Sondheim wrote that I got from Steve Ross. But I also have <coughs> a lot of other... Um, Things like that, you know, college shows. I think of some early Sheldon Harnick from when he was at WAMU, when he was at Northwestern, um, early stuff. Uh, so I like that kind of thing. And things like the New Faces reviews, since I inherited Arthur Siegel's collection, Arthur was the musical supervisor of all the New Faces reviews, so I have all these original sheets of all the New Faces shows, and those are pretty rare. I mean, they would go for a lot of money if they ever, if they ever came up. So I think what's a question of rare is what's, what what else somebody what if somebody thinks is rare like i think the away we go sheets those are pretty rare yeah definitely so, so do you try to get this rare music sort of heard as much as possible through concerts and cds and things like that absolutely that that's kind of my modus operandi that i i want to tell people there are wonderful songs out here and you should know them and these are them and these are you should be performing these or they should be done in your cabaret act or done at auditions or done a recording. I just want to get, let people know there are wonderful stuff and you don't always, people do CDs where it's nothing but well-known stuff that's already been out that a million people have done. And that's well and good, that's what they wanted to do. But I say, if, you, if people will still buy your CD no matter what you put on it, why not put lesser known songs that nobody knows? And people are like, that's a great song. How come I don't know that song? I often get asked for things when something does come out that may be something like what we're talking about. I start getting emails, people saying, I heard this song. I said. Did you notice who the pianist was? It was me. So I said, so of course I have that music, right? So that happens sometimes. So do you ever trade sheet music with other collectors? Sure. Uh, there's a guy named Dave Jason. He's one of the great jazz pianists out there. He's in his mid-80s, who's older now. He came over maybe two, three years ago. And he was, I actually had a duplicate of one of the Finney's Rainbow Sheets, which I think is really, really rare. You never see it. And I gave it to him, and he mumbled something about a trade, but we didn't really do anything, and I still haven't gotten anything from it. But I called him and said, what do you have that's worth? And he didn't think it was worth much. I said, you know what? Talk to any collector. That's worth a lot of money. So I'm, I want, like, it's not even that rare, but a show called It's, All, it's Always Fair Weather. It's a film. It was a movie, Compton and Green. And I love the songs from it. I've recorded some of them. And... Um, I only have Xeroxes. I don't have any originals. I don't have any originals, or I have professional copies. I don't have an original with a cover. He said, I have that. And I spoke to other collectors. I said, that's ridiculously easy. I said, I've yet I've never seen it for sale. It's never come up. 
So for me, it's rare, even though it's not worth Finney's rainbow, but I would gladly take that and some other things, I said to him. So yes, I haven't done a lot of trading because I, don't, I should probably do that with my duplicates, but I tend to sell my duplicates to this collector who will sell them on lists throughout the world and people will buy them. And he can probably get more top dollar for them. But I would trade, collectors want to trade. So in your collecting, how have you seen sheet music sort of change physically over the years? Well, I think there are less single sheets. In the old days, it was single sheets all, just, just single sheet music. It wasn't books, song books as much. And I think now they will put out a vocal selections book, if you're talking specifically about Broadway, but it's very rare that they'll put out a single sheet for a song, unless it's, unless it's like such a big hit, they think people are going to buy that one song. Like people would buy Can You Feel the Love Tonight, but they're, not, they're, they're, they're more likely to buy The Book of Lion King than buy any other song from Lion King, so they're not going to put out single sheets. But in the old days, it was all, that's why the bulk of this collection is single sheets from the teens to, 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 to like the 19, maybe 70s or 80s when there were less single sheets. So do you try to play all the songs that you get when you get them to see how they sound? You know, I, I should, the answer should be yes, but it unfortunately isn't. I tend to be, okay, I got these books. I suddenly get like a pack of like 20 books and I just stick them in the bookshelves and go, okay, I have them. Because I, I, I'd seen the shows and I knew how them. But I often say, rather than somebody sending me a recording of a new show, I'd rather get the sheet music so that I can play it myself on the, on the piano. And often people don't do that, but if they did, that's what I prefer. So I, I, don't, I don't play them. And then I sometimes pull them out, out later, years later, whatever. And I go, God, why don't I remember that I had this wonderful song? Oh, my God. Yeah. So. so what do you think are some of the best cut songs from shows? Well, I mentioned to you, I, as a song from She Loves Me, I've always been a fan of. You know, Louis Cleal, the actor Louis Cleal. He was the original yeah. God in Book of Mormon for many, many years, John Smith. Um, I was going to get him to record this because he did some recording for me. It's called My Drugstore. It was the, the character of Kodai, and he sings what you, it was replaced by Grand Knowing You, because they got such a big, big hand, they just couldn't, they had to replace it, that's what they said. Um, so that's always been a fave of mine, as it were cut. Um, I like this one, Thank You For Coming, you can hear on my CD. Uh, because it's the same melody as Good Thing Going. The whole joke was that Franklin Shepard tended to write one melody that goes, ba da 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 because we're awfully glad that you came. We're glad you hear it. Made it past the drunks. We're even gladder you're not at Julius Monk's. Thank you for coming. So I like that. But there are a lot of songs, a lot of songs you might know, know that were cut. For example, Rogers and Hart by Jupiter. A song called Wait Till You See Her. It's a standard, famous jazz standard, famous Broadway song. It was cut from By Jupiter. A song called Very Warm, uh, All the Things You Are was cut from Very Warm for May by Jerome Kern. It became a famous, famous song. I might be wrong about that, but I think it was cut. But uh, there, there's in several situations, and there are songs like Boys and Girls Like You and Me, which they tried to put into three different Rodgers and Hammerstein shows, State Fair, all, um, Cinderella, and, <coughs> um, well, Away We Go, originally. And it was never, they could never find, also The Man I Love was put into several Gershwin shows, but it never quite worked. So those are fascinating. They're not really cut necessarily, but it's the idea. I could probably come up with a lot more if I thought about it. So do you collect CDs as well to go along with the sheet music? I did back in the day. And I had 
I actually had a record collection rivaling the top, top record collectors back in the 80s. And I sold the entire collection to Dress Circle, which was a showbiz shop in London, in 1991, right as CDs were coming into play. So I was lucky to get them out of here just in time. And then I started buying CDs. But as I said, I never, or maybe I haven't said yet, I don't listen to things here. I play it on the piano. I never listen to, the only time I listen to CDs is when I go out to LA and I get in a car that has a CD player and I can put them in the, in the car on a CD. And if I'm driving all around, I can listen to things. But otherwise, I don't listen to so. I have a very small collection. I have the Ben Bagley's because somebody gave me an entire set. The man who took over Pendant Smiles Records, John Margulies, many years ago, wanted to do something with me. And he said, I'm going to give you the entire set of Ben Bagley's CDs. I said, great. So this big box came and that's what I have. And I have, you know, maybe 50 CDs. I, I, I just never listen to them unless some, for some reason I have some kind of reason to. So have you ever transcribed music yourself off of demos or anything like that? I have. I have a, a show I've become obsessed with. It's called the Muni Shapiro Songbook. It played for one night. It was the last show ever to play the Morasco Theater before they tore it down and built the Marriott Marquis. Um, I saw it several times in previews. And it was a big success in London where it was just called Songbook. And here it was about a fictional composer named Muni Shapiro who... And they take him, you want to side by side by side by showing when he wrote in the style of Gershwin, wrote in the style of this person, this person. And uh, I just loved the show. And I, I went to London for my junior year abroad in college. And after, but the, before that, I had, I had a cassette of the London cast album. And I spent an entire summer, after seeing the show on Broadway, for an entire summer, Judy Kay was in it originally. So it was Gary Beach from the producers. And I spent an entire summer transcribing literally playing the cassette and sitting at my parents' piano in Bethesda, writing all the music out. I don't do that, but I love this show so much, trying to figure out the right chords. And I had a whole, I still have that old book of music. And then I went to London and I paid the publisher, nothing was published, but I paid the publisher 20 pounds, which was a lot of money back then, maybe $30, $40. And they gave me the entire score, all oversized sheets. So I was able to compare my work. So I had the real score. Now you can get that score anytime because it's licensed by Samuel French. You can license the show. But that was a show I became obsessed with when I was like 18, 19, and just had to have all the songs from it. I saw it several times because it previewed for a couple of weeks before it opened. So, so um, Backstage Babble listeners, we've come to a very special first on the podcast, which is for the first time ever, we're going to have live singing and music from Michael Levine. He's been nice enough to offer to play us three or four rare songs from his collection, some of which you've already heard him mention. So, without further ado, a small concert for Backstage Babble by Michael Levine. So first we're going to hear My North American Drugstore, which was cut from She Loves Me. <clears throat> so the role of Kodai, if you know the show, it's late in the show when he knows he's going to be, he's been fired for having the affair with Mrs. Sipo, Mrs. Uh, Marachek, yeah. and he wants to, um, see, um, he wants to, he, he's saying, well, you know what I'm going to do is, and the character, the, 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 the tempo says, European 1930 quasi-jazz style, and goes something like this. Wait till I open my drugstore, see what it means to have class. 
None of your out-of-date fixtures for my store, in my store, just chromium, neon, and glass. After I open my drugstore, shoppers will drop from sheer shock. Never before has a drugstore assembled the wonders that only Kodans will keep in stock. I intend to offer miles of merchandise of every possible description. Spanish leather and Italian silk and cigarettes, both Turkish and Egyptian. I'll supply whatever people buy, from rubber bands to oriental rugs. Plus my exclusive collection of one-to-a-customer drugs. My North American drugstore What an adventure in sales I can just see myself greeting The patrons urbanely An elegant fixture in my tales Good afternoon, sir Good afternoon, madam Let me welcome you to Codeyes Why not rest a bit in our cocktail bar. Mr. Marichek, go park their car. You'll be entertained while you sit and rest by our string quartet, the Budapest. You'll be waited on by an employee who will be at least a PhD. And when you wish to shop, if you fail to see what you're looking for, then come to me. Kodai, 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 why? People will flock to my drugstore, sweeping the goods from my shelves. Money will beg to be taken from billfolds and purses, and pockets will empty by themselves. Now and then someone will ask what happened to the little shop around the corner. I'll reply, it's very sad, what happened to the little shop around the corner. Once they lost the only man they knew who knew the way to save a dying store. Too bad, it shriveled and shrank until nothing was left anymore. Watch for the name in large letters of flame on my new North American drugstore. Kodai's! Cy Coleman and Carolyn Leewolt wrote Wildcat 961 for Lucille Ball, and it's got some fun songs. But here's a song that was cut from the show called Bouncing Back for More. his kit and his caboodle and let the mexes have the alamo my grandma at the sound of yankee doodle let her southern comfort go but me i've got an ocean in my moon noodle when fortune has me flattened on the floor there must have been some rubber in my family tree cause i keep bouncing back for more yes i keep bouncing back Bouncing back, bouncing back for more. I may be in a wreck or on the rack, but bouncing back for more. Yes, I keep bouncing back, bouncing back, bouncing back for more. No matter what the knock, I've got the knack of bouncing back for more. My 
stage and saw me trip the light fantastic. I didn't get a job again for years. My best review was unenthusiastic, and my mother fled in tears. But do I think of doing something drastic, like giving up the art of terpsichore? There must have been some rubber in my family tree, cause I keep bouncing back for more. Yes, I keep bouncing back, bouncing back, bouncing back for more. I may be out of work and out of whack, but bouncing back for more. Yes, I Napoleon gave up in Waterloo. The Kaiser said to heck with it in Hessian, cause he knew when he was through. But in between inflation and depression, and all the rest they're gonna tax me for, I hitch up my riches, I head for the ditches to fight for the fight I adore. There's got to be a moral to this story. A moral to the story I'll invent If everything is not so hunky-dory Like the food bill blows the rent Sit up and take another inventory Of what you've got to even up the score There's got to be some rubber in your family tree To keep on bouncing back for more And I'll keep bouncing back This song was written in 1948 for the Cap'n Bell's production at Williams College of Finney's Rainbow, not Finney's Rainbow, P-H-I-N-N-E-Y, Finney's Rainbow, written by an 18-year-old Stephen Sondheim. The song is called Still Got My Heart, and it goes something like this. Why should I care if I've got plenty I've got my share of you Don't have a worry to turn my hair gray I'm in no hurry to leave my good fortune behind Say, I've got the go-do to buy you jewelry No need to go in for tomfoolery but irregardless of that part, thing, I'll never cry. I know that I've still got my heart. In 1946, Ira Gershwin and Arthur Schwartz collaborated on the musical Park Avenue, which had a book by Nunnally Johnson and George S. Kaufman, and George S. Kaufman directed it, 
was not a success, but it's notable also because it was the last musical that Ira Gershwin worked on. After this show, he moved to Los Angeles to write for the movies and never returned to Broadway. I've always been a fan of the score, and I love the songs, and I would like to do one for you today. This is called For the Life of Me, and first he sings, then she sings. Ned Scott there, and of all the names they've got there, you will find that I am not there. Then look up who's who in America, and though it would be pleasant to be among those present, I've no claim to fame. Of me they'll have none, in Bradstreet and Dunn, your choosing me was a bolt from the blue. I would choose for you. I don't know how I won you for the life of me. Can't understand how you could care to care. I can't get over it yet. Of all the many I'd met, you were so unlike, not anyone like you anyway. Did I ever win you for the wife of me? How did the likes of you and me combine? I look at you and then I pinch myself again to realize that for the life of me, you're mine. Now she sings. Finishing school in Switzerland, never met a Swiss there that I ever cared to kiss there. Or when I left, I would miss there. Then when I got me back to America, all through my junior leaking, there was no one intriguing with that real appeal. So don't go to town to build yourself down if you're a headhunter straight from Peru. I'm still exactly the type I would choose for you. I don't know how I won you for the life of me. I only thought I'd worship from afar. I can't get over it yet. The very first time we met, I had no inkling my star was twinkling. But here we are, just tell the world from now on, here's the wife of me. That's all I ask and all you have to do. Historians will agree in my biography. The only reason for the life of me is you. Charles, I'm sure you know the name Herbert Kretzmer because he was the English lyricist for the musical Les Miserables. But over 20 years before Herbert wrote Les Miserables, he wrote a musical called Our Man Crichton based on the J.M. Barry book, The Admirable Crichton. David Lee was the composer. David Kernan was one of the leads. Millicent Martin and Kenneth Moore were the major leads. And this is from 1964. It's called I Never Looked For You. Fell by 
by the charm of a fleeting glance to rue as the years drag on unsteadily the false alarm of a first romance. Though as a youth I lived too youthfully, I was never that kind. So Polly, I must tell you truthfully, you never entered my mind. I never looked for you, if truth be told, nor ever tried to touch the hand that now I hold. Without a sign from me, you're suddenly here, as clear as day. And if I may say so, twice as lovely, though I had eyes to see, to my surprise, I never saw what stood before my very eyes. Is this a miracle the gods allow? I'll never let you go, for all at once I know that I never looked for you. In 1980, Leslie Brickus started working on a musical of the play Harvey, and they did a production in Canada starring Donald O'Connor. It was called Say Hello to Harvey. The play was also called Hey Harvey earlier. I have a bunch of songs from it, and I thought you'd like to hear it. Leslie Brickus just turned 90 a few weeks ago, still at it, still writing. This is a song from 1980 called the title song from Say Hello to Harvey. Without whom this nice group of people would not be and could not be anything like complete. I refer to the friendly ball of fur dressed in white. This is Harvey, and Harvey is out of sight. Say hello to Harvey. Everyone loves Harvey, and Harvey loves everyone I know. I'm a friend of Harvey. When your friend is Harvey, you can bet that friendship's gonna grow. Gee, it's good to see ya. Great, got a great idea. Remember, wherever you may go, Come on, come on, come on and 
as lovely as can be. Sit and talk with Harvey, take a walk with Harvey. Any way to suit ya, believe me, I really know it so. Simply go to Harvey, say hello to Harvey, and he will win your heart, I know. No one's quite like Harvey, sweet and bright like Harvey, so Harvey. Now here's a song that I don't think anybody out there knows yet. I'm sure you all know the title. When I inherited Peter Howard's collection, my mentor, I inherited a lot of songs that were cut from Hello Dolly, and I'd like to show you one of them now. This song is called It Takes a Woman, but it's not the It Takes a Woman you know, as this was sung by Vandergelder. And it goes something like this. self-effacement to sweep the attic out and to scrub the basement and in the winter she'll joyously shovel the ice she'll dust the cobwebs and set up the traps for the mice only a wife will scour a greasy pan cause it takes a woman to bring the sweet things of life to a man like a top, a frail young thing with her veil and her pail and her mop. It takes blue eyes and long golden lay lashes and soft white Dresden fingers to dump the ashes. It takes a woman when you have a moth hole to darn. It takes a woman when you have a leak in the barn. A wife will empty a garbage can Cause it takes a woman To bring the blush of a rose And regard and repose And clean socks to the life of a man It takes a woman All maidenly, modest, and meek It takes a woman To put in a seven-day week Of fishing wrapped in satin and sable chickens and paint the stable. I see a female with flame in her long flowing hair. I see her there by the fireplace shooing the mare. Only a wife fits into my master plan cause it takes a woman to bring the heavenly kiss and serenity's bliss and press pants to the life of a man. The sweet things of life to a Wow. Um, thank you so much for doing that, Michael. Michael? Um, so I want to ask you next, which composer do you think has the most undiscovered material? You'd be surprised. I would probably say somebody, somebody lesser known like Herman Hupfeld. Herman Hupfeld wrote As Time Goes By. 
And that's his most famous song. But he wrote a wealth of other songs that are terrific. And I had a, somebody came to me many years ago who was obsessed with Herman Hupfeld and asked me to, to get all every song he ever wrote. And I have a lot of it here. That, that's just somebody that popped into my head. If you look at Harold Arlen, I would say I have a professor, a college professor named Walter Frisch, who was doing a paper, uh, a, a, a project on Harold Arlen many years ago. And he went to Muhlenberg, the University in Pennsylvania, Lincoln Center Library, Library of Congress, all kinds of places, and pulled all this obscure Harold Arlen material, much of it which I have, much of it which is wonderful, really great songs that nobody knows. And people know his, they know The Wizard of Oz and they know some of his shows like maybe St. Louis Woman, but there are other shows he had, other films he wrote for that you won't know. He might be somebody who has a lot of songs that are wonderful, that are great, you should know. I'd say a lot of composers like Irving Berlin wrote thousands of songs, you know the famous ones, but there are hundreds, literally, that you should know that that are good that aren't known well then, the last question i want to ask you is where can we see you coming up yeah i'd love you to see the the arthur siegel show if you go to the american popular song society website which is w which is www.ap apss nyc i think.org and there's a link to the show that i did for free several weeks ago on arthur siegel and it's a i'm really proud of that show that that is a great show on that same site if you if you give that site's wrong it's just it's google american popular song society um doing a show of lou spence with a lot of great performers and i'll be narrating it with with tom toast a great lyricist who worked with lou and um uh i'm also doing something for the little falls village shopping center or community center in bethesda maryland on a concert in Tin Pan Alley, and if you, I'll get Charles the info, and Charles can put it on his site or something. Because I don't know what the info for that is, but those are the two concerts. I occasionally get asked to do concerts, and I just go to a lot of friends of mine and say, "Can you do?" I will either put down a piano track, or if you want to come here and you're willing to come here, do it here. And uh, it's been fun. I love doing these concerts. I love just if it's if I can be in control of it, even better. If it's a certain composer, it's fine too. Well, thank you so much for doing this interview. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and I hope you enjoyed this interview slash concert with the wonderful Michael Levine, and I also hope you'll remember to come back next time for my episode with Broadway star Cass Morgan. Cass Morgan is the co-writer and star of the musical Pump Boys and Dinettes, and Broadway patrons will also remember her performances in The Human Comedy, The Cape Man, Ring of Fire, Beauty and the Beast, Mary Poppins, Memphis, and The British of Madison County. Her touring work includes Annie Warbucks and Cabaret. She is also a regular performer off-Broadway with such credits as Violet, La Boheme, Hang On to the Good Times, The Knife, Merrily We Roll Along, Floyd Collins, The Immigrant, Another Paradise, Inside Out, As You Like It, and more. Remember to tune back in for that and have a great week.